And uh, the first thing he says, hello, Brett. And I go, uh, no, this is Lewis. He goes, hello, Lewis. He goes, this is Richard, and uh, I'd like to buy your company. And I'm like, and I'm a snarky kid. And I go, oh, I didn't know we were for sale. And he goes, ha, my boy, <laughs> in my experience, everything is for sale. <laughs> and uh, wow, and he totally said, yeah, that. it was awesome. <laughs> Hi, everybody. This is Soren Johnson, and you are listening to Designer Notes, a podcast about why we make games. Today, we are talking to Westwood Studio co-founder Lou Castle. At Westwood, Lou worked in many capacities as a programmer, artist, director, and executive. Among other achievements, Westwood pioneered the real-time strategy genre with Doom 2 and the Command & Conquer series and made the award-winning adventure game Blade Runner. After the company was acquired by EA, Lou served as VP of Creative Development, notably helping lead the Boomblocks team. What's what's the first video game that you remember? The first video game I remember. Yeah. Oh wow, okay. <laughs> Let's see. Um I guess the first video game I remember had to be either Asteroids or Space Invaders. One of the two. Not sure okay. which. Yeah. What but was, right around the same time. What was the context for that? Like, uh, yeah, you, to, like you were, were you uh, like a kid or in high school or like what, how old were you? Been? Yeah. I, I, when I was in um, uh, middle school or maybe even grade school, I used to go down to um, the, there's a place called Wonder World. And around that area, they had hobby stores and things like that. I used to love to build models. Okay. And they had a, an arcade nearby um, that had opened up. And I'm pretty sure that's the first time I saw a video game was when I was in the arcade. Uh, I used to play pinball machines quite a bit at the 7-Eleven. Okay. And technically not a video machine, video sure. video game. <laughs> yeah. Did you did you connect with, uh, with them right away? Yeah. Yeah, I liked, uh, I really enjoyed them quite a bit. Um, I didn't expect to be in the games industry at all at that point. In fact, uh, was pretty sure I was going to be a vet when I first okay. started playing video games. Then uh, decided I didn't like seeing animals hurt, <laughs> so it's not really good to be a vet. It's a little too distressing. So I, I went into um, fine arts. I was always a painting and drawing and such. So I decided to be an architect. Found computers for architecture, and then um, discovered that I really like expressing myself on computers. And uh, the way to do that was really through video games. Okay. What? Um, oh, that's that's uh, that's going quickly. Uh, what uh, would you? So when were you in when were you in college? This has been. I wait, yeah, I joined. Let's see, I it graduated in nineteen eighty three. So I went to college right that same summer. So okay. by that time, though, and um, did you learn to program in college? Or? No, actually, I learned to program before college. While I was in high school, uh, my friends uh, got me into. I had a friend that had a computer at Apple II. I started playing the games on the Apple II. I bought my own, thinking I would use it to do uh, CAD CAM layout because I'd seen it at a at a graphic show that uh, for architecture. And once I got the computer, I recognized two things. First, it wasn't really a good tool for doing for doing a layout and such, but also that I really loved the color that was on the screen. And um, I was going through my discovery as an artist and painting and uh, trying to do cubism at the time. And I remember distinctly saying, I just, I wish I had more colors on the screen. They're mm-hmm. so clear and vibrant and I could do some really great art. Um, one thing about being an artist is that you spend 
a lot of your early career just trying to discover something new to do, and mm. you think you found something really fun. Like I know I'll turn people into Chrome robots. Oh no, sorry, I'm did it a long time ago. So you know, you, you get into these these fits of uh, feelings of discovery that and they truly are discovery. You know that you found, uh, and then you find out that somebody has already done it. It must be even worse now with the Google. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, it's trying right. to trying to come up with a new idea now is just yeah, uh, yeah. is frightening. Um, so but, were, you, were you trying to like digital art on the computer? Yeah, basically? actually, that's exactly where I started. Where I started in, in games was I wanted to do um, drawings on computers and okay. uh, paintings, really. And I thought, I used to tell people, I said, I know this sounds crazy, but someday you'll have uh, galleries where you'll have monitors hanging on the wall and, mm -hmm. and people will view the artwork the same way they view art now and, and it'll probably even move, you know. And, right. and, you know, people kind of scoff and laugh in their sleeve thinking, yeah, this crazy kid, he's got, you know, one color of really lime green. What are you going to do with, with right. that, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, um, but I was undeterred. I mean, I, yeah. I, I thought this is a great, uh, great fun place to be. And I, my first, uh, my first gig in games at all um, was actually doing artwork for, uh, um, for uh, Unicorn Software, which did uh, educational games. Okay. Um, what uh, when you were so when when you were doing art on on the Apple, like was this stuff you were doing by hand, or were you doing vector stuff? Or like, yeah. So so it's a great question. People always just assume, oh well, you whipped out your Wacom tablet and started <laughs> drawing. It's like, yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> See, uh, back then, you know, you had to, um, you literally had to either. You're mapping out the pixels? Uh, yeah. So what I would do is I would draw on a piece of graph paper. And because I was an architecture student, I used to have millimeter graph paper and all this. So I would draw on graph paper. Mm. And then I would have these really fine pens and pencils. And I would color in the blocks into the colors I wanted. Um, and if uh, the people listening to this may not realize, but the Apple II had a very crazy high-res graphics scheme where right. you had to skip other, every other pixel to get some colors. And it's crazy. So what I would then do is write down the hexadecimal codes. Um, off to the side, just literally visually encode them, mm -hmm. and then type them into the assembly language to get the images. Wow. Um, for full screen graphics, yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> it, it took a long time. I mean, these were characters <laughs> and stuff like that yeah. for video games. So you know, uh, the sizes of the graphics were much smaller than so an eight, eight sure. pixel by eight pixel character was uh, was about what you were going to get when certainly for text and stuff like that. Yeah. Then, um, and then for for drawing full screen stuff, they came up with a project a product called the Graphics Magician, I think it was called. Mm -hmm. And you could um, you could plot a line, uh, and if you created a polygon, it would fill the polygon with whatever pattern you had set. And that was a great innovation at the time. Sure. Uh, there were no mice; uh, they hadn't come around yet. So the way I used to move the cursor on the screen is I'd have two paddles. Uh, mm -hmm. One paddle was in one hand, one paddle was in the other hand. Each had a button. Is that the the potentiometers, yeah. So you hold the paddles. You can't see this on a podcast, but you hold the paddles <laughs> in your hands, and your thumbs sit on the buttons, uh -huh. and your fingers roll the, the turn the potentiometer. Okay. And so one button would be like a right so click, one and one would be a left sure. click, and the other one uh, one was one axis, and one was the other axis. So it's basically like drawing with an etch sketch. Okay. So yeah. Right. <laughs> and wow. then it turns out myself and uh, Rick Parks and a bunch of other people that started art. Way back in the early days of computers, we're actually quite good at etch a sketch for obvious <laughs> yeah, reasons. I bet. I bet. <laughs> well, I, I remember from that period there was always a sense of, and this would be a little bit later, but like I would see stuff like in Deluxe Paint that yeah. was this you know remarkable scene, yep. and I was always like, I just don't even. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, yeah. I was younger, but like the gap of like how will you actually make that? It just seemed like crazy. yeah. Well, Deluxe Paint came along. That was awesome. Yeah. You're talking about the Amiga era now. Yeah. That's when we had real color, like mm -hmm. lots of color and stuff. So yeah. yeah. Well, even like when the first Mac came out, and even though yeah. that was just that was just two color. Sure. Like you could you can make a 
Well, Mac Paint, he had a mouse. Yeah, yeah. could make a beautiful scene, awesome. but like it looked like you'd have to be doing it. But still, more or less pixel by pixel. Like you cleaned it up pixel by pixel. I mean, generally speaking, once you got good at this stuff, you could pretty quickly get something down, mm-hmm. and then you'd have to go through and clean it up one pixel at a time. Yeah. yeah. When did when did tablets first appear? Um, you know, I don't know. I think uh, I used mice to draw. I still use pads and stuff. Um, although I have an iPad Pro and. Um, uh, I like that quite a bit with the Apple Pencil. It mm-hmm. works out quite nicely, and I'm starting to get used to drawing with that, although it's not quite perfect yet. But um, I'd say the first tablets, the first ones I remember might have been, like, late 80s. Right. Yeah. Excuse me. <laughs> Sorry. Well, I'm I'm very much not an artist, so I'm always impressed by what <laughs> what you can get into a digital system, or what you know what you what you can make with digital art. Um, it just seems so hard to me, but like yeah, it's I mean the tools now are are, are quite amazing. You can do an awful lot of stuff. I think the the best inventions, or if you want to call them innovations, was just the the taking from graphic arts, layering. You know, mm. um, when you're doing a lot of graphic design and such, one of the things uh, my artist friends as we were building Westwood taught me a lot was so I was progressing in my fine arts still even after starting Westwood uh, was to do things on on overlays and acetates and things like that so that you could you could actually add an element to a scene and move it and adjust it and uh, and that was actually really important well of course when you get that into the digital world that just becomes so much easier to work with things because sure. you can you can underpaint something and you can actually put an element right on top and you don't have to worry about oh well how do I move that element later yeah um, very yeah. frustrating if you're working with paint yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's cool to see because yeah, it becomes a much more iterative, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know design process for art, which um, is powerful in itself. So. Yeah, I mean, people don't don't always realize if you do art history studies, which every fine art student would do. You know, um, guys like Da Vinci or any of the Renaissance artists, they used to do all these sketchbooks of small characters. Those were really just working out the details of a character. They would literally tear the pages out or put them on vellum and lay them into the into the design until they got it just right. And when they finished their underpainting, and even sometimes even after they had painted quite a bit of the painting, they would adjust a figure and repaint it. So that technique has been around forever. Um, but to be able to undo is essentially <laughs> the best the best thing ever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it also is paralysis by analysis too. Yeah. It can make you noodle something to death. Yeah, yeah. Um, so did you learn programming to like you know? improve your ability to make art sort of, um, like, sort of yeah and it wasn't it wasn't so much to improve um i was doing my own artwork to do for for scenes and things and mm-hmm. working with other uh, programmers and um, other people really programmers uh and i got really frustrated after a while because i wanted to do animation okay. and you know the were, you, were you already working a little bit at this point uh yeah i mean i guess it was sort of uh, i started doing programming myself um for um about the same time i started doing animation for games yep as an expression of my art, and I was drawing paintings and stuff. How for, did you? Uh, just curious, but how did you get your first job? Like, well, I, I worked at a computer store, the local okay. computer store, and um, some of the people used to come in and buy equipment and stuff like that. And, and you found out who was working on what in the in the, in the valley. Mm-hmm. And Unicorn Software um, was working on these uh, little video games, these educational video was games. This, would this be in Vegas or in the uh-huh. area? In Vegas. In Vegas. No. Okay. I was born and raised in Vegas. Yeah, I yeah. never lived anywhere else, actually. Okay. So mm-hmm. yeah. So um, yeah, so we would uh, I would sit there and do these little characters and get these animations going, and I had always obviously much bigger aspirations. I wanted much bigger characters, a lot more color, and um, I would go to the programmers and I'd say I've done all the the work and you know writing it out in hexadecimal and you just need to program it. And you know I always thought programmers were just lazy. And it's like why why are you not working hard enough? You can't get this stuff in there fast enough. So eventually I just out of frustration started learning how to program just to make my my artwork work and I started in basic and realized that's just pitifully slow yeah. and then had to learn assembly language so that I could actually get 
uh, decent frame rates on the animations, and, and that kind of led me down the path of doing uh, graphics on computers. So that's where I learned the programming side. And then that was still in early high school. Um, I used to submit my, my code to, um, to magazines. So you had like Apple Orchard and a couple of different magazines yeah. way back in the day. And you, you would type in the code, and this is uh, kind of unimaginable people now, but that's how you got games back then. Yeah. Uh, they weren't exactly freeware, but you'd buy your magazine, yeah. and your game would be, the game would be in there, you'd type it in, and you'd run it. Yeah. No, I, I remember those, those programs in the yeah. very back of the magazine. And... I submitted one a month. I mean, I was right. pretty much, well... My goal was always to make one game a month. Do you have I mean, any a member? You have any? You remember how much you got paid for? Like yeah, it was like uh, three hundred dollars or something like that. Yeah, it wasn't bad. It's I mean, not bad, especially for the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, you know, I was uh, what was I doing right before that? Was probably uh, well, I wasn't even fifteen. So I was probably doing uh, what collecting papers or delivering yeah, sure. papers back then. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, delivering newspapers. <laughs> Yet another thing that won't be around very much longer. <laughs> yeah. um, did you at that point? Did you? Think you wanted to make games for a career, or was it? Kind of uh, to... You know, I think still even at that point, I hadn't. I was still pretty fixed on the architecture thing. In fact, um, there was a pivotal moment uh, when I, I, when I was a junior in high school. Um, I, well, actually, through my high school career, I did a lot of architectural work outside of high school, and um, I applied for a lot of scholarships uh, to schools during my junior year, to the beginning of my junior year, to the the early early admission um, or early application process. So by the end of my junior year, coming into the summer, um, I had gotten, at that point, a job at the computer store, and I was working at the computer store pretty regularly. Uh, when I came out of that summer and I went into my senior year, I was teaching the computer science uh, three class because mm -hmm. I learned how to program an assembly language, and our, our instructor didn't know assembly language, so I was actually teaching the advanced computer science class for the school. That was my first computer science class in education. Before that, was it was all a hobby. The first time was teaching <laughs> the third-year computer science students uh, assembly language. Um, and I went to my dad, and I had this great scholarship opportunity through a public-private um, partnership in ASU, where a company would um, essentially hire me as an intern. And that, that with that with that uh, job, I would get a stipend. I would get a full-ride scholarship and a stipend so that I wouldn't have to do anything else, no odd jobs or anything. Right. And the number of years I went to school was completely covered, uh, free ride, full ride, the whole thing. And in return, I would work for the company for a fixed rate afterwards. So it was like paid college career and a job. Yeah. <clears throat> Doesn't get any better yeah, than yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, That sounds what um, the parent wants to hear. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. So I went to my dad and I said, hey, dad, here's this great thing. You did. Every, you told me exactly how to do everything right. It worked yeah. out fantastic. And I think I want to make video games, you know. <laughs> Uh, and uh, he asked me, he said, you know, if you, uh, and I'll never forget it, he says, well, if you, let's say you did this uh, this video game thing, because he had right. no idea what it was, and he said, you know, because he's thinking, I'm just going to play games all day, you know, yeah, so, yeah. He's, so he goes, if you did that. this would have been 1983. It would 83, yeah, oh, actually yeah, 82, so. Um, yeah, it was real early. Yeah, so he's like. And wasn't he goes, that right around the video game crash also? Yeah, 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 the Atari <laughs> stuff and all that, so. <laughs> so. So, he, so he says to me, he says, hey, you know, um. What would you do if you were doing the video games? Would you still do architecture? And I go, yeah, probably not architecture. I go, I like architecture, but I, uh, but it's it's complicated. You need a firm and everything. I go, I'd still draw and paint. I love to paint. I go, but um, but yeah, no, probably not architecture. He goes, well, if you went and did the architecture thing, would you still do the video? I said, oh yeah, that's my hobby. I mean, I would definitely do that no matter what. Right. And he goes, well, you know what you want to do. You're just asking for permission. And you right. know, my my advice is, uh, you know, follow your passion and do what you what you love to do, because uh, you'll be a lot happier in life that way. So. Um, I was I, really good on him. That's yeah, was, yeah. I, mean, I don't. I think a lot of parents 
<laughs> well, my parents would have reacted differently back then. Now, he did refuse to buy my computer when I wanted a computer as a gift. He said, too expensive. It's just a toy. It'll sit in the closet like so many other gadgets and gizmos you, you got. So uh, so I had to work as a, as a busboy and a... You know, working mm-hmm. for the park service and stuff like that to raise the money to buy a computer. They were quite expensive. I think I paid, uh, might have been almost $2,000 for an Apple II back in, uh, I think I bought it in 1980. Wow. And Apple II. Apple II. Apple II E? I bought an Apple II Plus. Uh, they had okay. just, actually, no, I'm sorry. I bought an Apple II and I bought the 16K expansion card. And very quickly thereafter, I managed to. Um, Give it back to the the basically return it and get an Apple II Plus because I I've, uh, ran into a little bit of extra money for an odd job, and uh, I was painting windows. Right. So for the Christmas season, I went around and painted a bunch of windows, and I was went into the the to the store kind of lamenting the fact that I I was only a few hundred dollars short of an Apple II Plus. <laughs> and uh, Nick Reese over at Century Twenty Three cut me a break and said, "Oh well, fine, we'll take the the one you bought and put it on the floor as a demo unit, right. and we'll we'll cut you an Apple II Plus for." That's nice. For just the difference in the price. Cool. So you decided you wanted to make video games. Yeah. What did you do after that? Yeah. So uh, the fine arts computer science at UNLV. So I went to, went to the local store. I was working as a computer science uh, computer salesman, and um, so that was really where it started. And um, because I was at the store, I kind of got connected with the computer games community there, um, and did a couple of. Um, we started a little company that didn't go anywhere. Uh, one of the guys that was running it wasn't uh, terribly motivated to like return phone calls and stuff. But we didn't know that at the time because mm-hmm. um, we had a near miss. This little tiny company called Out of the Blue, that that was the uh, three of the sort of first five employees of Westwood, um, but in a different, totally different arrangement. And um, so we started. I just started uh, little by little doing work on other kinds of games whenever I got a chance. Uh, and then Brett... Were uh, these from uh, games being made in Vegas? Yeah, Brett Sperry was the one who really got me into the kind of the professional games. That was okay. my business partner yeah. for so many years for Westwood. So he came... Um, how'd, he you, came in, how'd you meet him? At the well, he store? came into the store. Yeah, yeah he was he was a, a customer of the store. And he, he was the one... It was uh, Barry Green who knew the person who ran Unicorn that, that got me the art job. And then Brett had seen that I did the artwork and he wanted to meet me. So he met me and he goes, hey, I'm doing this other game. Um, and I think it was Dragon's Fire mm-hmm. on the Apple. And he goes, I, I could really use some art. Because back then, programmers were expected to do their own art. I mean, yeah. there was no such thing as professional artists in video games. So um, so I, I said, yeah, that sounds great. So I would look at the, the uh, they had a Commodore 64, had much better graphics capabilities than an Apple. Mm-hmm. Although I would have never said that at the time. It was absolutely true. <laughs> uh, so I would sit there and, and labor over trying to duplicate the uh, the same things. And, and then actually I wrote some of the low-level routines to do like the fire effects and stuff like that because I had a very clear idea of what I wanted to do and you couldn't actually draw it frame by frame. It was a, you know, a digital effect. Mm-hmm. So, um, so we got to working together and then we did, um, uh, he did Impossible Mission, mm-hmm. which was... Um, oh, the Epic game? Chadwell's, Chadwell's game, yeah. Oh. I think Chadwell, I think that was his name. Uh, and it was a great game. And so he did mm-hmm. the port again to the Apple. Okay. And that game... Um, uh, I, I want to remember his name. Gosh, it's terrible. But, uh, did, but did you work on that? Uh, well, I worked on the on the artwork on the of artwork. it. Uh, okay. Yeah. So that was a really, really, really tough thing to bring over to the Apple because that game pushed the limits of the Commodore sixty four right up to the edge. Right. Um, and so uh, that's where. Uh, I started getting into um, sort of high-speed graphics routines because the character was so large. Um, and then, um, actually, believe it or not, way back then, compression. Mm-hmm. And started working on um, image compression because I was going to school at that point. Then by then, I was going to university and learning uh, computer science as well as fine arts from university. But <clears throat> um, 
computer science at UNLV at that time was a heavy math uh, discipline. Uh, most of the computer science majors were getting hired by the defense industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, people may not realize this. Las Vegas has a very large defense uh, industry uh, in the community. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have the test site that's only 70 miles away, and that um, created a lot of uh, Department of Energy, Department of Defense jobs. Mm-hmm. So EG&G, engineering, aircraft, things like that. Um, and so that's actually where I got into the whole the whole side of uh, um, image compression and 3D systems and um, things like that. I was fascinated with 3D as an artist, of course. Um, so <clears throat> as Westwood grew and we started doing more and more games, I was taking these ideas that I was learning at school, which were very kind of high-end, high-level language, um, really, you know, Fortran, Cobalt, but uh, Pascal. Right. I'm trying to implement those kinds of ideas in assembly language on the Apple. So... Wow. Yeah, that's it was kind of weird. Uh, it, very quickly, the first project that Westwood did when we when we decided to create Westwood was a port of um, John Freeman's uh, Temple of Abshai trilogy, mm-hmm. and uh, we ported them over to the uh, the, the Macintosh. Okay. Uh, so and um, <clears throat> that was probably the last time I think Brett was the lead programmer because we had always been a team where I was doing the artwork and uh, not not really design. I didn't fancy myself a designer at that point. Really, just the artwork and some low-level coding. But by the time we started on the Mac, uh, it's kind of a funny story. But <laughs> but uh, by the time we started on the Mac, um, it was pretty clear I was going to end up being the programmer, mm-hmm. doing most of the most of the low-level heavy lifting, and and that's sort of where we went from there. Um, I, I just uh, he used to say I was a much better programmer than him. I, I'm not sure if I was better, but I was definitely a more disciplined programmer than most people at that time. I was really adamant about uh, you know structure control, uh, making sure routines were non-destructive to registers and stuff like that, that nowadays doesn't matter at all, but back then was kind of different thinking. Yeah. Well, you keep bringing up ports, and like, mm-hmm. I think people who weren't from the era don't know that that was like just one of the biggest well, issues at the time. Yeah, it's like, just how you got into the business. Yeah. yeah, you know, I mean, we could have, we did do an original fairly early. Mm-hmm. I mean, in 1985, when we started Westwood, it was March of 85, uh, we were doing the Temple of Abshai trilogy on the Mac. Yeah. Um, and the way that came about was very much like like you said. People had a game. Epics, Epics had this game. Yeah. had been successful on the Commodore. And they said, okay, well, we have this new machine out there, the Mac. It's been out for about a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need to find somebody to put this game on a Mac. And, um, you know, most of the games programmers back then were all assembly language 6502. Yep. Mac was 68,000. So um, at that point... Uh, well, so we went. I got to tell the story. It's actually fun. We went into the meeting. Um, we, we were on the phone with uh, Bob Lindsay, who gave us our first break. And um, you know, we're just two guys working for a couple computer companies around town. We'd done odd jobs, whatever. And you know, he, Brett had called him up and said, "Hey, we'd really like to set our own company." Disastrous name originally was called Brellos. Terrible name for a company. <laughs> so I, you know, I said, "That's just an awful name." We knew it was an awful name. So it's like, okay, well, what are we going to call ourselves? And I said, you know, I really like. A, like the area down in uh, Los Angeles, we always hang out in Westwood. We'd mm-hmm. go there after school or during high school and drive all the way down to L.A. to hang out there. Because you had, U- you had UCLA, you had the film industry there, you had kind of lawyers and doctors. I said, you know, Westwood Associates, I was already programming, doing mm-hmm. accounting software and stuff like that as an as a odd jobs part of my computer computer job, selling computers. And I said, you know, if, if it doesn't work out, Westwood Associates is a good enough name. We can do just about any kind of programming. We'll go get an odd job, do a do some point of sale system or whatever, and then use the money to make games, right? <laughs> right, right, right. Um, 
So that was where Westwood Associates was born. It became Westwood Studios later. Right. Huh. So, Sorry, I never associated it with the Westwood in L.A. because you guys were from Vegas. Right. Well, so. that's, where it was, that's where it got the name. So people go, oh, you must be from L.A. It's like, no. Are you UCLA <laughs> fans? Uh, no, not really. <laughs> but uh, we were friends of the area. Yeah. So the story is we go to, we're talking to Bob and uh, say we're going to do this game. He goes, well, we want to do it on the Macintosh. And I had a Macintosh. I owned one because I sold Apple computers. Yeah. So, of course, I got one in 1984. And I had used it to play around with and everything, drawing pictures on it and all that, but mm-hmm. I never programmed on it. I right. didn't, didn't even think to, you know. And uh, so funny thing is, you know, he, he, he says, well, we're negotiating a deal, basically. And he says, okay, well, we'll give you like $16,000, I think, to port this game over onto the Macintosh. And he goes, and we go, great, you know. We nail out all the details on the phone, and we hang up the phone. And Brett looks at me and he goes, I didn't know you knew how to program on the Mac. And I go, I didn't. I, I don't. <laughs> how hard can it be? <laughs> right? So I ordered the Apple developer kit and uh-huh. I got my 1,700 pages of inside Macintosh. And I said, oh, this can be very hard. <laughs> so, uh, but we got the game done. We got it done a little earlier than, than expected. And, um, I and, suppose it helps to be reporting up, sort of, instead of reporting down. Although you only had two colors, yeah, right? Yeah, actually, it was really hard because... Yeah. Um, uh, the Mac, especially back then, they had the uh, they, well. This, they used to call them uh, uh, Fat Mac, Skinny Macs. Well, actually, originally we called them uh, the Macs and the Big Macs, Little Mac and Big Mac. Oof. And then we got an email from uh, Apple saying that uh, it was a PCMA email and said, uh, "Please, we're, we're asking all salesmen to please refrain from, refrain from calling mm-hmm. the Mac Plus. I think they called it or whatever. Uh-huh. Uh, the Big Mac. Some clown <laughs> got really upset at us, <laughs> which was awesome." Yeah. Anyway, so that's how we. So the good thing, that's how we actually started the started Westwood with the the idea of just the sheer audacity of signing up for something we didn't we yeah. weren't really certain how, how we were going to do, do it. it. Yeah. All right, so you started started Westwood. Did you have a sense at the time of like, did you care about like what specific types of games you guys would be making, or I mean, did you guys have a goal to make to start making yeah, original um, games, or like what? Well, what I mean, you, what did you see for your guys' company? Well, I guess uh, so. We had different different kind of views on the things. So, uh, Brett asked me what I really want to get out of this, and I said, I just want to have fun. Mm-hmm. I learned this was my hobby, and I want to have fun. And, and he used to tease me about it all the time as we, of course, we got bigger and more successful. Um, but, it, but it didn't change. I mean, my, my passion was always just to really enjoy. It was always a, an exploration for me. Right. So we started with a um, role-playing game, which was uh, Temple of Abstract Trilogy. It was kind of an adventure game, really. Yeah. But it was an adventure role-playing, because you had equipment and stats and such. Yeah. Um, more storytelling, though. I, I would say... Uh, John's uh, vision for the Temple of Abshai was really to tell a D&D kind of story. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd have to talk to him at some point about it. I, I'm sure I did talk to him over the years about what it was that inspired him, but they were a great little trilogy of games. Mm-hmm. Um, so we started from that. Uh, of course, before that, we had done action games, like uh, puzzle games, platformers, things like that. So I don't think we had a particular idea of, well, we had to do this kind of game. In fact, uh, as, soon as, as soon as we finished the Mac version of Temple of Abshai trilogy... They came to us and said, hey, they have these two new machines coming out, and everybody's kind of looking and scratching their heads. There's the Amiga and the ST, mm-hmm. and they use the same processor as a Mac, so how different could they be, right? So right, sure. once again, we jumped into that one, both feet, and um, so we start, We got to be known at Westwood as a porthouse for 16-bit computers. Okay. And so um, we had a lot of success early on. Um, and I attribute quite a bit of it because... Um, there was a lot, a lot of uh, forward thinking from uh, Brett uh, Barry and, and myself to some degree, but in different ways. Uh, Brett Barry was our first employee. We, mm-hmm. we, he was, uh, he, I mentioned him earlier. He was in the games industry. Um, I was the number one salesman for Apple on the West Coast for uh, the hours worked versus the amount of volume sold, and wow. he was the number one salesman for total dollars sold. Okay. And we were both in Las Vegas, so you would have thought that. 
you know, it was a California company. Right, sure. but, but the reality was, you know, in California, there were a lot of computer stores and sure. <clears throat> a lot of competition, whereas we were pretty much, there were maybe three stores in the Valley. There was a mm-hmm. Computerite and uh, was a little locally owned place and then one Computer World. So we were really kind of the Apple thing in, in Vegas. <clears throat> um, so anyways, uh, Barry uh, really wanted to program on the ST. He was a big, big Atari fan and they had used the GEMS operating system. Um, and we didn't have time to write the code twice, so we had to write the code once and port it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Amiga was a more powerful machine, so um, I wrote the I wrote a light version of Gems mm-hmm. for the Amiga. Okay. So we basically made a cross-platform development before anybody was thinking to do to work like that. Sure. <clears throat> um, and then uh, Brett had the idea that hey, well, what, what, instead of just doing it as a one-off, why don't we build an entire library? of uh, package back then uh, we had like, like this technology called shift on the fly which was a way of the apple being able to maintain its colors across the screen and mentioned it has a crazy format so we had all these technologies that were kind of really nerdy low-level technologies and we used compression like i said which nobody was using mm-hmm. uh we wrote fast loader software for mm-hmm. the um for the Commodore 64 drives so we're really kind of very technical um game studio um, so and and you mentioned earlier, well, it must be much easier to bring your port up than down. But actually, not really. When you when you look at the actual processing power of the machines back then, and the amount of pixels you had to push on the screen, it was actually much harder to make those 16-bit computers perform like a Commodore because, because was, they had a lot more pixels. Yeah, the, it was just trying to move a lot more didn't, data. Didn't make up for that. Yeah, and they didn't have sprite systems. They didn't have any gra- GPUs. None mm. of that. Uh, they didn't have floating point units. I mean, there sure. was these were really really crude. Uh, brute force processors that were wow, trying to okay. push a lot of pro- yeah. pixels. The Mega had these, uh, these this core of chips, uh, uh, Agnes and Alice and a couple mm-hmm. others, I don't remember, all in a copper. And um, so we got this all this stuff from the Amiga, uh, and my goal was, okay, Barry can write everything in gems, and then we'll bring his C code over on the Amiga, and wherever he's calling a gems routine, I would just substitute with my own routine. And um, the Amiga was in a very different state of, uh, because Commodore... Um, had a lot of stuff coming over from Japan, the chips and such. We had all this, all the documentation was really hard to read. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was, I just basically said, chuck the operating system. I dumped the operating system right as you, right as you booted our games. It would throw the operating system away and we would have our own little light version of the operating system that would then do our own uh, gems-like wow. operating system on the Amiga. So we got away with that for years. And once we did the Apshai games and you had this little guy running around on a maze and everything, um, Bob was like, well, can you guys do uh, an arcade game, you know, Super Cycle, at the same time we're doing the games projects. They were very big on these sports simulator games, which are kind of twitchy sports games. Mm-hmm. And so I think, honestly, you know, there weren't that many people that could get good performance out of these machines. Right. And so uh, we started doing those those games uh, programs, and that's sort of what really kick-started uh, Westwood, because once we started doing those, we, we actually did some original games, like uh, California games and such. So right. that was where we bled into originals. Well, during that same time, we started working on a game called The Mars Saga for Apple, for the um, our, uh, for the Commodore 64 for um, EA. Sorry. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and we were using all of these different techniques we had to get, you know, this RPG going. Uh, so even from the very beginning, we were doing an RPG. Then we were doing sports games. Then we did a racing game, a super uh, called Super Cycle on the uh, Atari ST. Yeah. I mean, getting the Atari ST to have a full screen motorcycle racing was really really tough. Like yeah. you, you had to, it was bleeding edge stuff, and the, <laughs> the whole game ran to the interrupt, and I could go on and on in the details. Wow. Well, so that, that uh, that's actually what kicked off Westwood. I mean, we, we we ended up we didn't you asked earlier the whole way we got into this is yeah. do we have a particular type of game we wanted to make not really and I, I think that's what I think from the very beginning 
what we liked was the idea that things were happening in real time. Mm -hmm. So if you think about uh, when we first did Temple of Abstract Trilogy on the Mac, we had the guy running around in real time, the monsters coming at you in real time, and the publisher was like, no, 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 <laughs> you can't do that. Nobody no, can that wasn't how the people can't, Yeah, no, people can't think fast enough. You've got to go one turn. You, you take a turn, yeah, the monster yeah. takes a turn. You take a turn, the monster takes a turn. Yeah, that's um, a huge difference. Yeah, it's a massive difference. So we, we programmed it that way originally, thinking this was a great innovation. Right, yeah, yeah. And they said, you ruined it. I thought, okay. <laughs> so we had to go back and put all the, the, the stops in to make sure that the moves move one at a time and all that, which was actually more work than yeah. I've just done a turn-based. Oh, that's in the funny. First I mean, nowadays, turn-based <laughs> versus real-time is like a, it's like a design system choice right? sure you know, yeah. they're, they're both just totally valid but at the time like sure. you could see like real time was this exciting thing because yeah, you, nobody people could do weren't it. doing it you know <laughs> it was so hard so. yeah and that's actually <clears throat> if you look back at all the westwood games that's something we brought to every one of our things which uh, every one of our games uh, of course the sports games were always real time but right. but if you look at um you know questron 2 and you look at these dungeon games we used to do and um, a lot of games you'd be like ultima was one of the inspirations for a lot of games you'd be wandering around the world and uh, da -da, uh, an encounter instead it was like no 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 we want the guys running around on the world chasing you down and so from the very beginning we liked real time and um this, the game company called faster than light did uh, dungeon master yep. mm -hmm. which is a great game um and we said wow <clears throat> it would be really cool if we could work with a D&D &D license, because we knew uh, SSI at the time, to do a D&D &D version of that kind of inspired by Dungeon Master. And uh, that was Eye of the Beholder, so that was right. a, a huge hit. But this is, that's way later. I mean, yeah. we did, we did um, educational games for Disney. Um, we did uh, card games. We, yeah. I, I mean, mean it seems like no one of the way. defining traits of Westwood is that you guys weren't pigeonholed into any one thing. You know? No, in fact, um, it, it, in a weird way, I think um, the success of Command & Conquer... Um, was so strong for the company and and so um, you know most companies that have that kind of a hit that's all you would build yeah, you would just yeah. build that but Westwood would had always had a, a culture of innovation and difference and you know frankly we would go from really dark and very serious games to very lighthearted fun games and, and that constant oscillation was what just kept us excited so uh, so in a weird way Command and Conquer made it harder for us to sure. keep doing new things because yeah. everybody was expecting another Command and Conquer and we would even have like okay, we really love Monopoly. That's the best Monopoly we've ever seen. But why on earth was Westwood making Monopoly? I mean, you know, but we were, um, we had a vision. We said, you know what? Um, nobody's made a good uh, AI for mm -hmm. these kinds of board games. And the, the problem is every time you play this board game, you're basically just putting the board on a computer, yeah. which adds nothing to the IP. And the whole idea was, well, you know, I want to be able to see my little characters dancing around on the screen because that's what I imagine them doing when I'm holding them. And I, more importantly, I want to be able to play against the computer like it was a person, um, not use it to facilitate play amongst people, but actually play against this AI. It was really tantalizing to us to, to be able to have the computer take the role of opponent. Yeah. You know? Did the did the AI negotiate in trades? Yes, it did. Because that's the trickiest thing. The, that think. was actually what made it a huge success. It yeah. not only did it negotiate in trades, it could trade. It could actually uh, propose six-way trades. <laughs> so it would, yeah, it was an expert, it was an expert system. I wrote the AI for Monopoly right. in Excel, actually, because by that time, um, <laughs> yeah, by that time, let's see, that was uh, 95. So we were part of um, Virgin at the time, uh -huh. and I was the uh, CFO for the company, as well as doing game design and doing a little bit of light programming for some of our 3D systems and things like that. And um, I wanted to, wanted to do an expert system for Monopoly. I was fascinated by AI, yeah. machine learning. So, um 
I was actually living in Excel every day because that's what you do when you're a CFO anyways. And so I thought, well, you know what? I'll just put the board up in Excel and I'll write all the, the whole expert system in Visual Basic and get, get it all written up. So I wrote the whole thing there and worked it out with all the iterations and, sure. and got the whole, the whole system working to where it would, would actually value um, the board at any given time based on the expected outcome of how many moves were going to be left. It would then weight the different properties and the, the expected values and created an expert system to try to play the perfect game of Monopoly. And then all the values were tunable. So we created personalities in Monopoly by biasing um, uh, biasing the various uh, properties. In fact, um, one of them, one of the previous versions of Monopoly's what we thought was really funny was Becky thinks, you know, it was like, Becky thinks railroads are icky. And we said, that's perfect, right? <laughs> right. So we had uh, Fox and Scully, because we were big in the X-Files at the time. So we had Fox as one of the AIs and Scully as an AI. And we basically would just bias the board. Some people, some AIs would be really uh, stingy with their money. Others would try it. And they would each have strategies based on the, the values that we set. Um, it was really good. I mean, it was, it was a really well done Monopoly. And it was beautiful because we had a great art team that would do these fantastic animations. And uh, Mike Lake and those guys had done all the anima- the the uh, real-time animation inside Windows 3.1, you know, mm-hmm. so really tough to do. Thank God to, to Chris Hecker, who did, uh, <laughs> uh, it wasn't with Westwood, but he did all the Windows 3.1, the Windows, I remember it was called WinG libraries. So. Right, right, right. So I'm, I'm rambling, but at the end of the day, um, you know, we, we, we would do any kind of game that came our way, and, um, you know, we had huge successes for that. It was, we looked at, when somebody brought us an intellectual property and said, would you like to be, to work on this, whether it was Dune, you know, certainly... Dune 2 was not what people expected out of Dune. Um, what we did with Monopoly was way beyond what anybody thought you would do. Yeah. Um, each time, we always wanted to take that intellectual property and say, well, what does it mean to reimagine this through the digital digital medium instead of, what, what can it add? What can the digital medium add to this experience instead of just uh, sort of hanging on to it or borrowing from it? Um, and that, that's, I think, to this day, what excites me about uh, working with intellectual properties is how do you make it even better? Sure. Um, well, let's jump back to a couple things. Um, sure. So you you mentioned um, that I forget for which which game, but that you're starting to program in C at this point. Yeah, the um, the, the C. Well, so the first game in C. Well, um, so the Mac was all written in sixty eight thousand assembly language for yeah. Temple of Abstract Trilogy, but you had to interface with Pascal because mm-hmm. um, the Mac operating system expected every call had to be in a Pascal format. Yada yada. So again, I was perfect for that because. Even back on the 6502, I was always very careful about how the structure of the code was. Yeah. Uh, well, of course, the Amiga came out and um, the Atari came out, so it was C plus. Uh, C. Uh, I think it was C plus plus. Might have just been C, but it was mm-hmm. right around that time. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so anyways, we started working in C, Lattice C at the time uh, mm-hmm. for the Amiga, and I don't remember which one was on the uh, the Atari, but it was a different compiler. Uh, they were both K and R compilers. So. Yeah. Did you find that changed the way you worked, being able to like not not have to deal with assembly, or were you um, well, so used to assembly at that point? <laughs> well, it didn't change the way I worked because I had to write the uh, all the assembly language routines that oh, okay. were that simulating be. the the uh, libraries for the uh, right, for the right. Ami- for the Atari on the Amiga. But um, but yeah, no, we wrote the games in C, um, and that was part of the cross cross compatible uh, nature. <clears throat> um, but that being said, like uh, SuperCycle. The menu systems and things like that were all written in C, but the minute you went into the game, it was all pure assembly. Um, yeah. In fact, actually, SuperCycle ran, the entire game loop ran in the interrupt, um, the vertical blank interrupt, which is another thing that's gone, so people don't even realize right, how sure. that all worked. Yeah. Uh, but it was basically free drawing, you know, <laughs> or free, <clears throat> sorry, free free game logic, you know. Yeah. Right. Um, 
Yeah, so I guess C C was the way Westwood always did things. Mm-hmm. Um, apart from our our eight bit games, our eight bit games were always written, of course, in pure assembly. Yeah, I'm trying to think back. It's like uh, Dragon Strike was 1989. Yeah. So, and even in '89, um, we didn't write that. The only thing that was that was C was the game would start. It would do its menus, and the minute you left the menus, it was uh, a full on assembly language. I wrote my own DLLs and everything yeah. on that too. So, yeah, I got to, I got to skip assembly entirely. And, um, you know, it's, it's kind of one of those gulfs that it's kind of hard for me to imagine programming in that format, but I guess you just get, no, you just build up your ability out, I suppose. I yeah. Mean. I mean, it's, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's really not, if you've programmed in anything at all, assembly is mm. not that tricky. It's just shockingly low level, right? Yeah. You know, you're, you say, okay, well, I got to start with a routine that does a thing and then build a routine that sits on top of that routine. You just keep stacking them up. Mm-hmm. So um, you're, you're building your, old, your own tools and your own library, yeah. basically. Yeah, exactly. And, and you're building them, you know, nowadays you'd kind of be a loon to do that because the compilers have really, really smart people doing optimizations and you're not likely to, to beat the compiler. Yeah. Um, sometimes. I would say on phones nowadays, uh, it certainly works. It helps to know how the things work. Yeah. So... Being an old assembly hack it was not terribly useful come the sort of late 90s. By that point, you know, most people just really weren't diving into assembly. But um, having an understanding of how all that worked was hugely valuable because mm-hmm. you, you just structured things differently. And <clears throat> even back then, the, the thing that's great about assembly is you can optimize your, <clears throat> your libraries and your implementation around exactly what it is you want your game to do mm-hmm. versus all the things it might have to handle if it was a general purpose so, um, and nowadays, I mean, um, gosh, if you really know your, your shaders and things like that, you can, you know, you can optimize a shader Now you can use any kind of tools to create shaders. But when you look at the code that those tools create, um, they definitely can be optimized. You, you know, it's not, uh, even those compilers aren't perfect, right. um, but pretty soon they'll be better than most people could write a shader, I suppose. So. Right. Right. Cool. Uh, I also want to talk about Mars Saga a little bit. Yeah. Because I actually, I, I love that game. That yeah, it was a cool one game. Of the, one, of the, uh, <laughs> one of the games I remember most from my, for my Commodore 64. Yeah. Um, and uh, um, so that was your first original game. Like, how yeah. did you guys, how did that game happen? Um, EA came to us and we had, uh, say, 86, I think is when it was. Mm-hmm. Late 85, early 86. We were working with Epics at the time and they said we'd love to, we, we're about, uh, we see farther. Well, I think it might have been um, <clears throat> through... A GDC or a GDC-like meeting, actually, weirdly enough. Oh, really? Wow. Um, because it was, uh, Temple of Upside Trilogy was, first time I ever met John Freeman was, um, I had made a comment off the stage about doing Temple of Upside Trilogy, and I think he was a little bent because, you know, it, 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 I was, certainly wasn't trying to claim authorship, but he had mm-hmm. made, I, he was in the audience, and he said something, and I said, wait, I said, just to be clear, we didn't invent this, this was a port. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, the game was originally done by John Freeman, they were great games, so. Um, <clears throat> and we had gotten a little bit of uh, a little bit of discourse between the two of us, and it was it was quite positive. And so, I think that's where we must have made the EA connection at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, we also knew uh, David um, Gardner. So mm-hmm. David Gardner was uh, with Trip Hawkins was one of the very first guys for EA, and David was a, a high school student with myself at Western High School in Las Vegas. Oh, wow. uh, he was a junior when I was a senior, so well, he went off to California to make video games for yeah. Atari and stuff and uh, ended up being one of the guys who founded EA. So we knew EA people and Rich Hillman and those guys from yeah. probably the mid-'80s, uh, so we've known them forever. And um, and we got a, a call from um, – uh, we, we called them or they called us, but we probably called them and said, hey, can you – you know, they were publishing – their publishing model at the time was to hire companies to do – uh, it was like a 
record label kind of right. uh, model. And so, so we thought that was great. So we went to work on the Mars saga, and, um, and that was that how I got, got done. They came to us and said, what do you want to do? And we said, well, we've just been working on these role-playing games. We'd like to do a role-playing game. We don't want to do something fantasy. We'd rather do something sci-fi. And, right. Yep. Yeah, it had a really detailed tactical mode. It did. Or, or uh, tactical combat mode. That. Yeah, um, and um, there's some really neat uh, algorithms in that thing, too, uh, like the the radial fills and stuff like that, so you could have mm-hmm. explosions and yep. animations that. and stuff. You and throw a grenade or something. Yeah, it would, like, and it would actually bend around. You know, it would actually have the blast radius that would have the, mm-hmm. d- the diffraction around corners and stuff and would calculate all the damage. And so it was really very... Uh, it was like a tactical, yeah. uh, kind of a Tom Clancy kind of game nowadays, but very, very crude version of that. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was so a little, little little almost. Like, little yeah. yeah, but XCOM was not yet. Yeah, was, of course. <laughs> before that, it was quite uh, before that. Yeah. It was. It was. Uh, I was the creative director for that one, and the designer and the uh-huh. lead programmer on that. And so I did all the the world stuff and yeah. wrote the story. Uh, my brother was a um, going to University of Texas by then. He, was, mm-hmm. he has a, P, a PhD in biochemistry, but he had he was a microbiology, molecular biology, and bio, biochemistry. And so I was like, I'm really fascinated about Mars. Could there be life on Mars? And could you make a life form based on silicon instead of uh, carbon? And so we had this whole meta, you know, sort of uh, hypothetical discussion of alternate life forms. And so that was the whole impetus for Mars. And um, you know, we went out and got the the scans from the the Viking landers and mm-hmm. or the Viking craft. And, and the land early landers and uh, had we, we, a lot of people don't realize it was actually pretty detailedly mapped out where yeah. the world map was Olympus Mons and Valley of really. and all that yeah like the world map of it was 256 by 256 cells and every uh-huh. cell had an um, algorithmically generated battlefield and the height uh, information for the entire world was uh, pulled from the maps of Mars at the time that's cool so yeah it was it was um, something to this day I always strive for is this authenticity in games right. Yeah, I remember want trying to you know you go from city to city on the yeah. world map, and uh, I think you had you had a pretty heavy, a pretty restrictive like uh, some sort of supply. I assume the oxygen yeah. or something like that. Yeah, and probably. Like, yeah. And it felt very because all the other games, you know, Ultima or um, Questron or whatever, it was all you know just wanted freely. And this is the first time you're like, oh, I really have to like I have to manage this. Yeah, yeah, I really have to decide: do I want to go this way or do I want to go that way? And um, well, there are a couple other random things I remember from it. I remember yeah. like when you. When you went up in levels, you know, you would upgrade all these different things, right? Uh-huh. Like like handguns or rifles or right. whatever. And I think you kind of hid what weapons were going to unlock as you went up in levels. And, like, I was always... It might be too much detail that I don't remember. Yeah. <laughs> but it's probably true. Um, we, we, and the... I was always, like, curious. I was like, oh, I'm going to get that next level. Yeah, that was... This new gun I've never heard of. Exactly, yeah. Know, so that, that is, definitely was part of the design. Really Did you ever play Traveler? It was a Mm-mm. paper game, yeah, paper one. So we played a lot of Traveler. Um, yep. We played a lot of D and D and Traveler and other games. And one of the neat things about Traveler was it was very mathematically based. And so that's where Mars Saga got a lot of its inspiration. Was hey, we should build a role playing game around uh, balance and math. And so that's fascinated me from the very beginning. I've always been a balance guy. Of you know, right. how do we build out? Um, what what kind of algorithms would be interesting to people to play through, right? Because right. so it's what it really is is optimizing around algorithms. Which is still very handy today, as I, right. as I'm working on these mobile, um, mobile uh, massively massively multiplayer RTS games. Yeah. It's all about balance. It's the sure. economies about balance. The units are about balance. So, so going way back then, that was the same thing we did back then. Yeah. And you're right. Um, the, the the point of discovery. You always wanted to be discovering new things. Yeah. I, I remember how it worked. Now you go to a shop. And they would only show you the items that you could use. That you could use at the time. Yeah. And so every time you went to the level, you're like, I'm going to go back to the shop yeah. to see what's new available. And this and weird, because were... I think most games, they would just show you everything. Yeah, yeah. And no, you'd be like, do. you can't use this stuff. I think if we were so... really, if I was enlightened now, if I was 
could use the Wayback Machine. I probably would have shown the next thing, but had it locked. Right. But yeah, the idea was you didn't want to see some. You didn't want anybody ever to see the entire list because yeah. you didn't want them to know. You know, always wanted them to aspire to go back. And and the different towns had different emphasis. Emphasis, mm-hmm. so you could actually have different stuff from different towns. Yeah. And there was a whole. Uh, Do you ever play Trade Wars? Because that was also. Mm-hmm. So that was the other thing in the game. You could sell and buy. And use your travel and actually arbitrage the, the mm, different sure. villages and yeah. the different colonies. And, um, oh, that's yeah. cool. Yeah. <laughs> There's one other thing I remember about the story, which is that um, it's just a very subtle thing. But when when you were doing various things in the game, you, you encounter an area, you get a chunk of text, right? Yeah. But anytime <laughs> you did something that moved the story forward, you get a new chunk of text, but it was in a different color. Yeah, like a cyan or something. Yeah, like yeah. That. And I remember like it just had like that attachment in your brain where like, every time you saw the color, you were like... Something happened. Yeah, like, yeah. You're, like you, you sort of lean forward and you're like, oh, well, something's really the, happening. The here. world state has changed. Yeah, right, exactly. Right. Well, that was important because the, 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 the Martians got a lot more violent as time went on. So, <laughs> You know, that's uh, we got many years later, they were porting that game. To, it's a long story, but they were porting it to other platforms and everything. And... Um, uh, and it was called The Minds of Titan when we mm-hmm. published it on, under, uh, see, it was SSI, I think, that, mm-hmm. or no, uh, Infocom. Infocom published The Minds of Titan. So it's basically, oh, really? wow. yeah, so we did the Mars saga for the Commodore. There was another one called uh, Future Magic, which was mm-hmm. the, 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 I can't remember the guy's name now, but a different programmer. Um, and um, <clears throat> they, the EA said, well, we've got two sci-fi games. We don't want to do Mars saga on all these other platforms. Yep. So we said, okay, fine. So they gave us the rights to publish them on the other platforms if we wanted to do that. We did the ports. So we resold the title to Infocom, but we said, look, we don't want to just do Mars Saga and pay a royalty. We'll update the story and call it The Minds of Titan. So we actually, we did change the the physics, or not the physics, but the uh, underpi- underlying um, uh, premise of biology and stuff to be, um, which, which which mine it was, but it was, it was basically one of the moons of Titan. And I want to, I want to, oh, well, it was, Titan it was. no, I'm sorry, not my, um, it was Titan, but it was the Minds of Titan, but uh, it was, yeah, it's exactly right, uh, the moons of uh, Jupiter. Jupiter. <laughs> there we go. It'll, it'll come to me. But yeah, yeah, so Titan it's only was... been 25 years. Yeah, so Titan was, the, Titan was the next likely place to have life in the universe, yeah. and so we went the... And I think that might have been methane-based. I don't remember mm. now, but... But all of these had, like, real... I mean, we were big Carl Sagan nuts and stuff, so we sure. were like... It was really a best attempt to make it as authentic as possible. Yeah, cool. Yeah. All right, so the, you start... You guys, I assume, start making a lot more original games at this point. You would think, but um, you know, the work—the work drives you where the work drives yeah, you. So yeah. I think after that, we did um, a slew of um, uh, ports. We did uh, Road War uh, 2000. We did, um, and then we did a lot of original titles for Disney, um, mm-hmm. educational titles. So we did uh, Mickey's Runaway Zoo, Goofy's Railway Express, and uh, Donald's Alphabet Chase. Uh, for Apple, and then we did those across all platforms. So we got to the point where, and those were original titles. So we were starting to do ports and originals, but across platforms. So we started to become the not the port place, but the place where you would go if you wanted to deliver IP across every platform. So we built up a relationship with SSI, mm-hmm. who uh, was willing to. Westwood had, um, you know, we had some seasoned veterans that had done a lot of games, and we were bringing in new people all the time. We didn't have like the Bay Area, a huge talent pool to pull from. So we had to hire people that had very little experience. And so we, we quite openly told SSI, we said, look, we're going to put people that are learning and it's going to take us a little longer, but we'll make sure the game is of high quality. We're not going to put our name on it if it's not good, but you need to be a little bit more patient with us. And consequently, it'll cost you less than what we charge other people to do things because you're willing to work with us. And so Chuck Krogel over there did a wonderful job with us and, um, they, I still remember the day they went to pitch uh, um, 
TSR Hobbies for D&D, which was a huge franchise at the time, you know, and they uh, everybody had already been in the bidding. Yep. There was a couple of these where we stole them at the last minute, but this one was the first one. Uh, and they were about, <clears throat> oh, I think about a month out. And uh, Chuck came to us and said, listen, um, I know you guys do all these these kind of high-end, high-tech games. He goes, you know, we're not really a high-tech studio at SSI. We're really all about the math for the yep. for the strategy games. And so we learned a lot from them when it came to balance and strategy. But they didn't really have the technique uh, mm-hmm. to do the high-speed stuff um, or 3D systems. <clears throat> they said, um, we're pitching TSR. We want to do D&D. We're like, oh, man, that would be fantastic. Yep. We'd love to work on D&D. And he said, well, we'd like to hire you guys to do something. So I, I just got to work right away, and I built um, the 3D, a character-based 3D uh, maze runner mm-hmm. technology um, <clears throat> using Carno Maps as sort of what, what BSP trees were used for later, which is an occlusion system. So so basically built a 3D system where you could run around the map, and you could have a character set to graphics, and then a little tool that allowed you to draw the graphics so you could have you know, granite wall and things like that, right. <clears throat> um, and monsters in there and everything else. So we built basically a tool set and a 3D system um, and a little maze editor and everything so you could actually build a, a dungeon mm. so that uh, so they could demo it. And so it was about five to six weeks after we had started. We finished it up, gave it to them, and they went to pitch it. And, you know, EA came in and said, we are EA, we see farther, and had some slick ads and yeah, said, yeah. you should sign with us. And, you know, Activision did whatever they did. But all of them were basically telling TSR, these are all hobby guys. Yep. You know, here's how we're going to – here's here's why we're so impressive – and these guys are just—they're like, yeah, this doesn't feel good, right? It feels very Hollywood. Right. And then in comes the, in comes SSI, and they're very humble. And they go, look, the reason you're going to work with us is because we this will be all we do, yeah. and we'll completely change our company to 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 service your IP. And we brought all these computers in, and they set it all up, and they showed them prototypes of games running. And and Chuck said, if it, he'd really feel so strongly if we hadn't helped to contribute to that, he would have never landed the the D and D license, which really saved SSI in a lot of ways to sure. certainly vaulted them to a different level. <clears throat> wow, that's interesting. Yeah, uh, so so we ended up having a wonderful relationship with SSI. We did Hillsfar and uh, mm-hmm. all these things. That's what led to Eye of the Beholder yeah. where we finally got a shot at doing an original IP inside D&D as an external studio. Right. You know, in the beginning, uh, understandably... So SSI had the license and then yeah. you were able to... Yeah, I mean, in the beginning they were really uh, very careful about what they did with their gold box games and what we did, and we still serviced and, and updated the the tools and such, and so we got a little piece of every D and D game that was ever done. So we we knew how while they were selling, we're like, we really want to make one of those. <laughs> uh, and um, you know, I think the first I do remember actually the first uh, SSI D and D original we did, well not original but the big game we did was Eye of the Beholder. Mm-hmm. Um, they were willing to pay us uh, six hundred thousand to make the game. Okay, um, and we got. We spent about seven fifty um, <laughs> to make it. Uh, I'm pretty sure that was the number, and uh, it was really weird because we had spent all this extra money building the game. And if you think about the mechanics of that, is it's we were we had a really sweet royalty deal, uh, but even still, you know, it's it's what is it seven eight times for every dollar you have to make to get your money back. So right, yeah, yeah. so it's a really bad return on investment. So. We said, look, we just need a lot more money. The first one was very successful, and um, the ending of the first game, we did this whole animation, but required another disc. And they said, we're just not going to ship another disc. The cost of goods are too high, so they didn't do it. So we got bitched at by the community forever <laughs> about how the game ended and just got a page of text, a wall of text. I'm like, well, yeah. we had a wonderful animation, but there was no place you could post it or anything back then. Um, so then, anyways, uh, the next game we did was uh, Eye of the Beholder 2 with them. Mm-hmm. They went to the 750 we spent for Eye of the Beholder, which was 
you know, quite unusual to go higher on a sequel. Um, and we spent a million. And so and that was around <laughs> the time that Brett and I started sitting there scratching our heads saying, wait a second, what do we... this is not sustainable. We're, yeah. we're never going to survive if we keep... And it was our own damn fault. I mean, it wasn't SSI's fault. I don't mean to make it sound like they were cheap or anything. We, we agreed to make the game for that. But we were just so passionate about what we wanted to do. Were, was this the first time teams were getting, like, like was the size of the teams fundamentally different from what they were before? Is that what um, was they were getting bigger, but the, just the, the amount of art and animation, okay. the amount of assets, that, and just the, you know, they're just big. They're yeah. big products. And we, our aspirations, we, you know, we wanted to be, we had created a hit. We wanted another hit. And, you know, we didn't feel like, you know, just milking the first hit was going to get us another hit. We had to push it. So we had to make it better, you know. And um, when you just looked at the sheer amount of work we put into things like Hyrandias and stuff like that, where they're, they're just uh, massive amounts of art. Um, and we had some good technology, too. Um, Steve and those guys had to come along board, and we were, I did a lot of the early uh, compression algorithms. I mentioned that before. We, we actually got into compression to make things faster, not to mm -hmm. make them smaller. Right. So fast loaders back in the day, um, the way they worked was you compress your data, and then if you compress your data, you can move it across the bus faster. So yeah. um, weirdly enough, that was like Dragon Strike and games like that benefited hugely by the fact that we had a 1.2 megabyte uh, floppy, but that was the entire game and all the art. Well, our art was fitting in a fraction of the size and yeah. 30, 40% of the original size versus everybody else would. I mean, most people weren't even thinking about it. They just weren't even trying. Yeah. Nowadays, you know, you've, you've got PVR and all these great compressions, two bits per pixel. That's fantastic. But right. um, <clears throat> did you, I mean, with Eye Beholder, I assume you know, basically you, you guys saw Dungeon Master and yeah. then you're like, we can do something better with this. You know, actually, I don't, I don't know that that was it. I mean, <clears throat> <clears throat> sorry, excuse me. Um, we saw Dungeon Master, and mm -hmm. we said, you know, this is a fantastic game. Yeah. Um, and the way they visualized the, the the world was perfect. I mean, we played Wizardry a lot. When yeah. we were, mm -hmm. So I would say Dungeon Master did the you know 16-bit version of Wizardry. I would give it back to the guys over at uh, Wizardry that really kind of defined what it is we expected out of a D&D &D dungeon crawler. Right. Um, but we saw what Dungeon Master did, and we said, you know, we've got every bit as good an artist. We can create the artwork, and we mm -hmm. can do that. Things, But we didn't want to do... Just a dungeon. We're, we've never been a, a house that wanted to just do a knockoff. I, and to this yeah. day, it's, I, I get it. I mean, you know, I, I was a vice president of studios for Zynga. Believe me, I understand fast, <laughs> fast follow as a strategy. Right. It makes sense, and it's good business. And there's nothing wrong with that. I don't mean to disparage it, but as a, as an artist, as a creator, mm -hmm. I just always like to zag when everybody else zigs. It's mm -hmm. just just my preference. Um, and sometimes it works out, and sometimes it doesn't. So it wasn't that we wanted to do Dungeon Master on the Amiga and the ST. Um, as much or I think it they were on the Amiga, they we, were on the Amiga. we did it on the PC okay. yeah so it wasn't that we wanted to take it from the uh, PC and our Amiga and do it on the uh, or the ST and the, and the PC it was that well you guys aren't doing anything and we've got this D&D &D license and we have this idea for a yeah. game and we've got these great artists why not yeah. um, so uh, and, and the thing that People look at the games on the surface, they look very similar. But if you look at the mechanics of the games, they're very, very different. Because we had to actually follow all the D&D &D rules, so we had to actually do a completely different uh, system of how the game was implemented. Right. We couldn't, like uh, the uh, Lands of Lore, where we got to build our own um, mm -hmm. RPG system. D&D um, &D is a wonderful system. Um, yeah, I was going to ask, like, do you find that, <clears throat> was it... Like what, what were the limitations of like that? You know? Well, it, I was going to say D and D is a wonderful system, but it requires it. The, why it's wonderful is it requires a great deal of human storytelling. Mm -hmm. So, if anybody who's who's had a bad experience playing a D and D game after they've had a good one, or vice versa, um, 
can really tell the difference when you have a good DM, right? Mm -hmm. So the problem with making a D&D game with the strict D&D rules at the time was it wasn't a very mathematical system. It was a very storytelling system. Gaiax was a, a bit of a, a, a scientist genius guy, but at the end of the day, that whole property had become um, a system of rules to help a storyteller um, kind of be able to tell a story in a way <clears throat> that made the players feel like they had some control over the outcome, right? <laughs> Sorry, <clears throat> getting dry here. So, um, so the difference was, you know, when we got to build our own role playing system um, mm -hmm. back with Mars Saga and Questron Two, we got to yeah. invent our own. When we got to do Lands of Lore, we got to be able to say, okay, let's build something that naturally fits within the digital environment and then sits nicely within that whole context. So we're not trying to figure can, out. Can you define like what that meant? Like, yeah, I mean, like, um, you know, there were a lot of computer game players are playing against a computer mm -hmm. and they're looking for exploits. They're looking for min-maxes, right? Yeah. And so there were a lot of system, a lot of places within the D&D system where things just didn't... A DM wouldn't let you get away with what you could get away with in a game because there's there, there's no AI trying yeah. to stop you. And so the mathematical outcomes, like, there was no real reason to, to upgrade this particular spell because that second spell wasn't better than the yeah. first spell, right? Um, or vice versa. Maybe there was no reason to bother with spellcasters at all because warriors just had a better overall, you know, benefit when it comes to running around through dungeons. And so it was very difficult to to kind of cram the D&D system, which really required a human interpreter, into something that was a very, very fixed set of rules. Right. And SSI had a lot of experience with that, with the gold box games. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> but even still, for Eye of the Beholder, we had a lot more visuals coming out, and a lot we wanted to implement as much of the game as we possibly could, and as much of the spells as we could, as, as, as authentically as possible. And um, James Ward and those guys over at TSR were really appreciative of the fact that we kind of had free license to do whatever we want, but mm -hmm. we were really religiously stuck to the IP. Well, when we went to do Lands of Lore, suddenly it was like, oh, we don't have any of these constraints anymore, so we can make systems that are, you know, binary systems. We can make mm -hmm. things that, that are exponential growth. We can do overlaying curves. We can do S curves. We can do, you know, logarithmic decay. You know, you can build the math around what works naturally as a sort of great... Um, mathematical systems of serotonin release, right? And that's where you really get these essentially slot machines, right? I mean, that, that's what they use, or a single button, press a button, yet somehow it's captivating. That's the kind of, I mean, I don't want to trivialize RPG games that are really, really complex, but that is what makes them work. You know, a great rock, paper, scissors, <clears throat> um, rock, paper, scissors, lizard, Spock, whatever you want to do. But the idea that you're you're using these different systems to interact with each other in a way that's mathematically beautiful. And so it's complex enough so that the brain isn't quite, we're really good at seeing patterns, so we know there's a pattern, we just don't know what it is. And that becomes the thing that entices us to explore. And uh, you can't, the system wasn't designed to do that in D&D. It was designed to let a DM make a wizard feel important, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh. Sorry, I, no, I'll rattle on design. But. Well, I mean, I'm thinking how, like, yeah, taking I, you know, I, I, I the beholder, taking the D and D rules, and not just trying to put them into a computer, but also trying to make it work in real time. I mean, like, that real was, time that and make them a faithful. Huge challenge. Yeah, exactly. Like, that's that's exactly the problem. Thing. Yeah. Versus, if you're designing the system, you can make something that works. You start with a system that mathematically works mm -hmm. in real time, and then you back it into the fiction. So it's it's a lot harder to go the other way. Yeah. Did you say? Do you ever get a sense that players could see a problem there? That like they're like they were you know obviously they probably got a lot of people buying the game because it was yeah. a D and D property right yeah it did but very like, well hundreds of thousands of copies back yeah. then that was that was huge numbers so 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, we never got any complaints. Yeah. Um, in fact, actually, if anything, we got a lot of accolades. And yeah. the, the only things that people complained about, there were a couple of spells that were, I mean, they would you would have to do a text parser because the the spell would you know like a wish mm-hmm. uh, how do you how do you put a wish in it? yeah you know so it's those, those that's an did extreme just, example did you just but drop those spells basically? we just had to yeah you yeah, just yeah. couldn't do them because yeah. you know so so uh, we had some of the spells we didn't implement um, yeah. and there were some uh, weapons and systems that were uh, that were broken that were okay yeah. um, I mean it's when you first talked about using the rule set I kind of assumed that like you'd use the the You'd use the mechanics, but you guys could kind of come up with your own spells or something. But it no, sounds no, like you guys we, were we copied, super faithful. Oh, super faithful. Now I can see why that would be super, really, super faithful. Yeah, really and they, a challenge. And as you pointed out, they had to work in real time. Yeah. And so, you know, when you when you really dig into D and D, there's a lot that human beings are interpreting, and yeah. just you say, oh yeah, well that makes sense. It's like, well, you can't put in code that makes sense. Right? Yeah, just, <laughs> you have to actually have a rule. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, so so Lands of Lore, I think, um, from all all measures, was just a better game than uh, mm-hmm. Eye of the Beholder one or two, um, and Eye of the Beholder three uh, SSI did that game, and I think, um, you know, I think they uh, they they emphasize scale. Mm-hmm. It was one of the first, I think, uh, sort of unsuccessful attempts, and there were many, to uh, to make scale as a game element. Mm-hmm. Um, so they just thought, well, if they loved Eye of the Beholder one, which was all about faithfully reproducing a D&D experience. And they liked Eye of the Builder 2, which added city, uh, you know, so dungeon for Eye of the Builder 1. We added cities. So mm-hmm. It was the Forgotten Realms, uh, uh, not Hillsfar, uh, like Waterdeep, I think, is where we put it. And so now we had town dwelling as well as dungeon dwelling, and mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, the game got a lot bigger because we were aspirational. And they thought, well, if they, I think they kind of missed the point. Right. <laughs> they were thinking bigger, better, and it's yeah. like no, big enough, and it becomes sparse, and sparse is not fun. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm. Um, so is is this around the time when Dune happened? Is this um, yeah, there? it's right around the time. I have the holder two. We st- <clears throat> um, we 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 wanted to do the next game. Uh, we had to so. Eye Beholder 2 was the the financial impetus to find a financier, a, a, a partner of some sort. Brett and I still owned 100% of the company. Okay. Because you we needed were, some more money to finish it. Yeah, we just couldn't build games that we wanted to build for the money that we could get mm-hmm. from... Um, and remember I said SSI was, I wouldn't say cheap, but they were certainly more frugal. They didn't have as, as much resources. Right. We probably could have gotten the numbers we were looking for at an EA or an Activision, but... Then they own the IP, and then they assign us a producer, and the producer thinks he's going to design the game, yeah. and we don't want they to They have their that. whole system, right? Yeah, they had a whole system, and we had a couple misses with those guys. It's like, look, you know, we really want somebody to to give us the financial resources we need to build whatever it is we want, hold us accountable on the on the financial return, but stay out of our hair yeah. and let us do whatever we want to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not easy, right? No, so. No. Um, uh, we were we had a game called Kyrandia that we were working on on the uh, in the background um, mm-hmm. on our own funding, and um, we had showed that to uh, our agent, and he said, "Well, I know Ken and Roberta Williams over at it was an adventure game, and we mm-hmm. we know Ken and Roberta Williams, so let me introduce you to Ken and show him the game." So we went down to see her online, and we were showing the um, the uh, the game off to them and everything, and they said, "Okay, well that sounds really great, you know, um, very very interested in that." Well, when we went back. To Vegas, um, I guess our agent had called up uh, Martin over at Virgin and said, "Hey, you know, we've got this company, and um, you know, they're they're looking at Ken and Roberta over at SSI. SSI is going to make a significant investment." I don't think we were actually really thinking sale at that time. We were thinking we were going to sell the game, you know, and get funding. Um, 
so I get this call from Richard Branson, uh, and I get this, I, I literally, I'll never forget this. I get this call, and it's like, hello, I have Richard Branson on the phone for you. And I'm like, I, okay. I had no idea who he was. I didn't know the name, and I had some British accent gal calls yeah. me up, and, and uh, the first thing he says, hello, Brett. And I go, uh, no, this is Lewis. He goes, hello, Lewis. He goes, this is Richard, and uh, I'd like to buy your company. And I'm like... And I'm a snarky kid. And I go, oh, I didn't know we were for sale. And he goes, ha, ha, my boy, in my experience, everything is for sale. <laughs> and uh, wow, and he totally said, yeah, that. it was awesome. And then I, he says, let me, he goes, he goes, I just want to make it a directory call. I'll be, you know, my, um, uh, my, my, my head of U.S. operations, Martin Alpel, will be reaching out to you and things. And, and I guess what it was was to impress us, which was the irony of this was today, of course, that would be impressive because I know who the guy is, but right. I had no idea who it was. So <laughs> it just it was just, just so bizarre. So I go and I talk to Brett and I say, hey, you know, this guy called up and said he wants to buy our company. So at the time, he didn't have the Internet or anything. Yeah. So we're like, who the hell is Richard Branson, right? <laughs> we actually knew who Martin was because we had, we had been courting a, a virgin for a while and they were right. just starting to do some stuff. And so we knew he was. Yeah. <laughs> it would have been more impressive to me for Martin to call. Um, <laughs> So uh, anyway, long story short is, uh, of course, we figured out who he was and right. we said, oh, shit, that's for real, you know. And then right afterward, uh, SSI or not SSI, Sierra Online called us and said, well, we're not really interested in uh, publishing your game, but we would be very interested in buying your company. And so now all of a sudden we wow. had a bidding war. Oh, so, nice. <laughs> uh, yeah, so um, they, we had the, the deal was really very straightforward. Um, Sierra Online, we were going to get a pile of money, myself and Brett apiece, more money than we imagined being able to get. I mean, I hadn't even thought about the company being worth money at the time. I, really? We were just making our games, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think we probably had a best, highest paid employee at the time might have been seventy or $80,000 a year, and Brett and I were making thirty-five. Right? Yeah. We were taking less salaries because yeah. we were squirreling away the money to build our own games and everything else. Yeah. Um, and uh, it was really an interesting decision because... Sierra Online was going to make us wealthy and immediately put in place somebody who would run operations. We were 29 people, so they wanted to put a finance person in, an operations person in, and a, and a head of the studio. Uh -huh. And then Brett and I would become the executive producers for game teams, and we would be the talent that builds games. Yeah. <clears throat> and they said, you know, their argument was, very sane argument, you know, you're 29 people, you're basically two or three teams of people, and you guys are running it. And yeah, you're doing the business, but... It's not what you want to do. It's not what you're best at, yeah. Right. It's not what you're best. That's not what you want to do. And we were and we were kind of insulted by that. It's like, well, we think we're doing pretty well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we think we're doing okay. Uh, and so Virgin was a very different deal. Virgin was, uh, no, you guys know what you're doing and you're creating great products and you're building a company and as long as you continue to do so, we'll continue to give you money as long as you're getting a return. So the deal was very little money up front, a big piece of the growth of the company. And if we didn't grow the company profitably and successfully, we would have just basically given it away. Um, and so we said, you know, <clears throat> not ready to get retired and not ready to become... But that was definitely the, risk, the riskier deal. Oh, yeah, it was hugely risky. I mean, I was insane. It was no question. Yeah. It was... <laughs> It was the it was the stupidest best move we ever made, you know. Which was no, I think it's I think we'd rather have the autonomy. We'd rather have, again, but if you think about how the motivation, the, I mean, <clears throat> how was the autonomy built? I mean, if you sell your company, I guess. Yeah, lock, stock, and barrel, hundred percent. They right. they owned it. I mean, this yeah. gets into like legal details, I guess. Yeah, but that's okay. Like, um, it's well past the the yeah <laughs> the, the time of it. Like, how do how do you how do you feel comfortable that you'll have autonomy when you have still sold the company? Well, we we trusted Martin. We we were, yeah. we had started working on uh, Dune Two um, mm -hmm. at the time. We had already had a relationship where we were working on a game together, uh -huh. and um, 
And it wasn't just that. I mean, it was also, you know, it was in the contract. We, we, we knew we could trust on the paper, the, the, right. the paper. And the paper gave but us. But you guys would get a cut of, you know. It was true autonomy and it was a, fa- a, phantom, a phantom equity and okay. a lot of uh, control clauses about change of control, um, you know, what they could and couldn't change about the deal. Uh, as long as we were profitable at, you know, we would set a budget at the beginning of the year, mutually okay. agreeable budget. By the end of the year, as long as we met or exceeded that budget, so we you would guys, have... you guys were a very defined unit of like, this is yeah, West funding, this money comes in, this money comes out. Right, funding of at least that level or more. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we started building products. They were successful. They gave us as much money as we wanted. We were able to grow uh, at whatever rate we could handle. And because Brett and I were held accountable, I mean, honestly... There's nothing more than saying your life's work is going to be lost if you're not profitable. Right. Is no different than saying it's your own money. I mean, yeah. we really treated it like our own money. Yeah. And I mean, um, that, that type of deal sounds it's a brilliant, brilliant deal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it actually, seems, it seems like it works as long as your owner follows through with respecting you guys, right? Well, yeah, but they they couldn't really. I mean, so so Virgin had plenty of money. It's not like yeah. Virgin as a company was ever going right. to. So they they were on the hook. And um, they could always buy the company, but it was at that point an obscene amount of money uh, for what it was worth, you know. Um, but buy the so, company after we. I mean, well, if they could, now. they could always just undo the deal okay. and pay us a flat fee. But the flat fee was prohibitively expensive, oh, okay. right? So there's part of a contract that said like all of the stuff that's here goes away. Yeah, I think it was uh, three times gross revenues okay. or something like so that. So it even scaled, which is interesting. Yeah. So it was, oh yeah, no, no, absolutely. We weren't, we weren't, we weren't rubes. I mean, we did, we built a good deal. But and so what happened is the more money virgin put into the company Mm -hmm. the more expensive it was to try to buy us out so the more incentivized they were to follow the original terms Hmm, that's really interesting uh, yeah it does seem like a a, well, these a guys are sharp. But smart deal. No, Virgin's it wasn't their first rodeo, man. They've mm-hmm. done they've done a lot of de- deals. I mean, that's what we used to joke that Branson buys and sells companies to fund his airlines. You know, I mean, that was <laughs> he loved airlines. And uh, but they what they really did is that at the time and still to this day, they bring in the Virgin brand. They buy mm-hmm. something that has potential that's not so sexy. They make it sexy and fun and cool. Yeah. Um, and they do whatever they need to do to change it. They're almost like venture capitalists in a sure. way. And that mm. brand then adds value. They pump up the value. They sell it to somebody. They lease the brand back to the person they sell it for for some period of time. And then it's, you know, good on you, mate. You, you do what you can with it. Right. So um, I mean, that's I kind of what they thing, did with us. I guess the key thing is that you guys are just incentivized to keep doing a good job. We just want to do a good job. Yeah. And, and frankly, I mean, we were always pretty frugal, um, mm-hmm. but we were even more focused on the numbers once that happened because we owed it to ourselves and, and our staff. I mean, we, we had no intention of ever having a layoff. I mean, Westwood went from the day we, we started in 1985 till um, 2002, right. we had never had a layoff. Yeah. So we had less than 2% unplanned attrition, and we had low layoffs. We had people attacking us constantly trying to hire our people, and they just couldn't yeah. pull them out. No. Um, it was it was not perfect. You know, we always look back, and it's always so much better in your memory than it was, but um, but it was pretty damn close. I mean, we, we were we were closer than anything I've ever seen since. That it uh, we really invested in people. And um, the lesson I would have to myself and anybody um, is the best way to get that kind of loyalty is if you create something <clears throat> where you're as committed to the individual growth, career growth, and professional growth of your of your staff and personal growth um, as you want them to be to the company. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the quid pro quo that so many companies miss. They 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 want staff loyalty. But all they're willing to offer is a paycheck. Yeah, well, you're not going to get if you're you treat somebody like a mercenary, you're going to get a mercenary. That's yeah. um, <clears throat> and uh, so I mean, you mentioned how like it's important that since you guys never had, never had layoffs, you know, yep. people felt you know loyal to your company, loyal and secure. Right. Um, was there were there also 
pass for promotion? You know, oh, yeah. Was that... No, no, we almost always promoted from within. I mean, okay. it was very – because the company grew organically anyway. So as we were growing, people kept getting um, – we were careful not to do uh, is there, I mean, what, the thing title that, escalation. You know, we didn't do that. So. Right. I mean, the thing I occurred to me is if you, the issue, of course, is it's a bit of a pyramid, right? So there's only so many paths up, right? Well, is we went from... from we as were, long as you keep growing, I guess? Yeah, we were 29 people in 92. Mm-hmm. By 98, when EA acquired us, we were probably 100 and... Gosh, we, we ended up getting to be 250. Mm-hmm. I think we might have been 180, 190 people. Yeah. So, you know, we went... F- we went from 30 to call it 200 in six years. Yeah. So, yeah, no, there was lots of growth. Um, and as we were growing, we were becoming more and more successful. And so we were launching titles like like Dune 2, which was, of course, very fan favorite, but uh, pirated widely, so it didn't make as much money. Um, then we did Monopoly, and then we did The Lion King, yep. and then we did, you know, yeah. I mean, we got people from all over the industry saying, yep. I just, I have to work at Westwood, you know. Yep. Um, the late great Rick Parks set an art standard that was just, mm-hmm. I mean, as, as the technology got better, he just got better. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. it was amazing. Um, and I think our strategy of hiring artists was really good too. I was the head of the art department mm-hmm. and, uh, my thing was I put ads in papers all over the place and I said, I'll hire anybody that has 10 years professional illustration experience, no computer experience required. Right. And mm-hmm. this was shocking to people because they come in and they say, well, I don't know how to use a computer. And I go... I can't teach anybody how to spend a lifetime drawing. You, you've mm. done that. Right. I can teach you how to use a computer, <laughs> right. Yeah. right? So uh, that was the attitude. And we brought in um, we, you know, what anybody else would have said is grizzled veterans, you know, with uh, our average art age. I think the art staff's age was like 42 or something like that, which in the games industry was insane at that time. Almost everybody's in their 20s, you know. Sure, yeah. So uh, we had a lot of guys that were in their later later ages of their careers and um, and then even the, the balance of it. I mean, well, 10 years professional illustration, you're probably in your 30s at a minimum. So <clears throat> so anyways, I, I think it was just a different uh, different approach and to this day, I, I still think it's the, the right approaches to, right. you know, anyways. <laughs> yeah. No, that's, that's cool. Um so with Dune 2, so that's an interesting project because um, I think you alluded to earlier, it's not necessarily what people expected out of a Dune game. So yeah. How yeah. did that, I mean, in many ways, a lot of people pointed that that's the beginning of RTS. So oh, yeah, like, it, I, that, it definitely how did that is. Happen? It definitely is. I mean, you can you can certainly look at, um, at games like, uh, well, so a lot of people have pointed out Herzog's Phi, but sure. um, we didn't play Herzog's Phi. It wasn't even in our studio, so I didn't even know about it. Okay. So no. it certainly didn't influence it, but it had some of the same ideas. Um, but if you think about Herzog's Phi, Herzog's Phi was really about a single... A single unit. Yeah, it was, really yeah. wasn't. It was production. It had some of the elements. Yeah. Uh, the real inspiration for um, for Dune 2 was uh, visually from above this game called... Um, God, what was it called? Uh, it was on the NES, or uh, NEC, Turbo Graphics, Military Madness. So Military Madness was a kind of turn-based uh, strategy game. Mm-hmm. Um, and it had a kind of look that felt like it could be very Dune-like. Uh, Brett's favorite book was Dune. Yeah. So um, he was very much into the fiction. Mm-hmm. Then um, from a gameplay point of view, we, we liked real-time. We said, what if we take these really complex strategy games? We took this really complicated real role-playing game, um, uh, D&D, and mm-hmm. managed to get it to work in real-time for Eye of the Beholder. So... What if we just took all these strategy games we've made for SSI all these years and went back to making them real time and just took that real complexity um, in real time? It'd be very difficult to play, so we have to dumb down some of the things and make it really easy to use. But that that would be really interesting to have the resource generation at the same time. And Dune as a fiction was great because 
everything goes back to the spice and everybody has to collect the spice and the spice is the energy of the universe. And so it made it very uh, adaptable to a kind of this, this harvest, harvest, grow, build for war, attack, and how did that whole gambit, you know? Um, and so that's, that's really how it came about. Um, Brett was also a big fan of a game called uh, Rescue Raiders mm-hmm. on the Apple II years and years ago, which basically the earliest, earliest version of tower defense. Right. So when you put all those kind of that, those ingredients together, you get something like a Dune II. Um, and <clears throat> it was supposed to be Dune. Okay. So we signed the deal with Virgin. We were going to make the Dune game. The, the, the guys in, um, in America, uh, they got the license, they signed it up, and they, they had a start. So we were probably three-quarters of the way done or maybe more. And uh, Martin came back to us and said, yeah, you're, I know you're almost finished with this, but uh, I have to say I didn't realize that the guys in Europe are still working on that Dune Adventure game mm. that we thought we killed. Um, <laughs> and so they're going to ship it, and it's going to beat ears to market, so it's going to end up being called Dune, and you guys will be Dune too. And it's like, that's the most bizarre thing ever. Yeah. Why would you take an adventure game? But they didn't have the rights and the license to... They had the rights to sequels, but they didn't have the rights to any of the uh, they couldn't they couldn't just name it something else so they yeah. so they, they, they were like well we'll use dune and that we'll leverage that for dune 2 and i think i literally did not buy dune 2 because i bought dune dune 1 yeah well i, I wouldn't like, disparage those guys but yeah, yeah it, was, I mean, well, it wasn't the game you wanted yeah <laughs> yeah i mean i i like strategy games it was definitely yeah. not a strategy i mean there was just no reason for me to think that dune 2 was would, would be game. a strategy game right yeah. like i can't even think of another i can't think of any other game that ever it's ever done that ever done yeah. that it's like not, the sequel nobody's ever done that it's a, it was a terrible idea <laughs> Um, I mean, it wasn't calling it the sequel. It's not even the right term. Right? Yeah, so. yeah. So we we called the uh, <laughs> Genesis version Battle for Arrakis, which okay. was, you know, after the success of Dune uh-huh. 2. So the fun thing about Dune 2 was um, strategy games at the time were measured in thousands of units, maybe tens of thousands of units if you were lucky. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so we made this game, and it was pretty expensive to build, relatively speaking. And we were really confident that we were going to sell, you know, 20, 30, 40,000 copies, maybe right. more. You know, we, we had just had Eye of the Beholder. So we said, you know, we're, we're shooting for 100,000 copies. And that was a gold hit at the time. Right. And uh, it would be, you know, today like saying you were going to sell, we're going to shoot for 10 million copies. And right. everybody's like, yeah, that, that, the best this genre ever does is a million. You know, you're off by an order of magnitude, right? <clears throat> so uh, Virgin had, uh, had budgeted to build 60,000 copies or something like that. And they almost immediately sold out. And so... Um, it was widely pirated. I mean, how did it, massively how did it pirated. spread so quickly? Uh, well, mean, because it was just they were floppies back then. And no, no, the, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I know about the piracy, but oh. like, it's a completely new type of game. Like, yeah, people, people just took to it immediately. Just immediately. Yeah, they played yeah. it and said, "Oh my god, you got to play this!" Right. Yeah. And so, um, and in fact, actually, the Blizzard guys often said they played and they said, "I need to play this against somebody. It has to be head to head." You know, mm-hmm. so that's kind of the inspiration of the whole Warcraft. Oh, I've forgotten stuff. that. So, Dune, yeah. Dune did not have multiplayer. Uh, Dune no. Two did not. No, it was a single okay. player game. Yeah, yeah. you are playing against the computer. Yeah. Yeah. So, so then uh, they were working on Warcraft, of course, to make it multiplayer, and we we wanted to make it multiplayer at the time, but we didn't have the the tech for it. Yeah. So uh, after Dune, we went into Command and Conquer, and when we started on Command and Conquer, we went okay. We're going to create a, a swords and wizard, swords and sorcery game. What's going to be called? Uh, I think swords and sorcery was the name. We actually got a t- trademark everything. So we started in um, in fantasy, uh-huh. and we were building a fantasy game that was going to be a CD-ROM based fantasy game that was based off the Dune Two ideas. 
and we would have mana as something that we could collect, and mm. um, you know we'd have gold mines and mana and wood for building things. <laughs> Sound familiar? <laughs> um, you know, and uh, you know you'd have human as a faction. You'd have the uh, the we called them the dark ones or something like that, right. which were going to be the there was going to be. Uh, uh, the two factions, humans and uh, fairy folk, you know, but yeah. uh, but really was going to be the goblins and things like that. So, um, so pretty freaking close to orcs versus humans. Um, and then somewhere around probably about a year, maybe less into it, you know, we said uh, Brett was like, yeah, you know, the problem with this whole fantasy thing is I'm not sure. You know, at the time, there weren't a lot of really successful fantasy franchises, and sci-fi yeah. was very popular. And he's like, you know, but really, what's popular is modern day. There's no context for any of this. So if we want to be big. I mean, CD-ROM is going to be everywhere. We want to sell CD-ROM games. We should be shooting for something more accessible. Yeah. So let's make it modern military, and let's use a modern military theme, which everybody understands a tank. Everybody understands yeah. a guy with a machine gun. Um, I don't have to explain to them what the spell is, you know? Yeah. So the thing took a, a dramatic turn and became a military game, um, and it felt better in a lot of ways to us because of the way that we had built the game. It just... Uh, tanks and vehicles and things like that just felt better for us right. and so that created the original command and conquer and then we started going off on the storyline and uh, Edie Laramore and Joe Bostic was really more about the the mechanics and Brett was really about the overall story uh, and Edie uh, wrote or the plot and Edie wrote a lot of the was dialogue. The, was sort of the FMV tradition part of the first Command & Conquer? Yeah, so uh, Brett came to me uh, while we were working on all the compression stuff we had done all the animation for of course for uh, things and I remember this conversation too he says he goes he goes, well, I, you know, we need to work on, you need to work with the engineers and everything and the artists, and we need to get full screen audio and video because <clears throat> um, that CD-ROM is so big, 700 megabytes, what are we going to fill it with? We need to fill it with full screen animation. And um, I said, well, first, you know, frame by frame, drawing hours of animation is extremely expensive, right? And and he goes, well, we've got artists, we can do it, you know, we, we'll pencil it out, we'll figure it out. I go, well, we can probably use this 3D stuff that Aaron's been playing with and everything, and we can probably... Um, Aaron Powell and those guys, we can probably get something. We've all been wanting to do more of this anyways. We can probably use that, and it's kind of got this freaky-deaky look to it anyway. So um, we were doing the Monopoly stuff early on. it, So we're kind of max early days, 3D. Mm -hmm. So I think we can create the video, and between that and video shooting and everything, and Aaron had done this in front of a sheet, had filmed himself in front of a sheet. We were compositing all this stuff. We're like, yeah, we can, we can make this. I go, but the problem is you're never going to be able to get full screen graphics and animation through a single speed CD-ROM. It's only 144K. It's, there's no, there's not enough data throughput. Oh, Lou, you're just being lazy. <laughs> it can be done. Somebody's going to do it. You need to right. figure it out. So myself and Chris Yates and a bunch of people just worked our butts off. And, you know, he was right. We, we did it. He pushed us pretty hard. But, right. um, but yeah, we got it. We got it working. Um, even uh, Bink and those guys—they nobody could do it at the time. I mean, was there was there no one else that had FMV at the time? I don't, I don't remember the order. The closest thing was uh, Wavy by the guys at Seventh Guest, and okay. Wavy was a wavelet compression algorithm, but it was um, loaded into memory and played, but it wasn't—you uh, couldn't stream it. <clears throat> right. So, for full screen um, audio and video, nobody. Right. I mean, there were you could do it with uh, Bink or some of the other tools, but it looked terrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> our stuff looked good enough you know it still wasn't great but it was good enough to not to completely degrade the experience um, and it was a it was a vector quantization uh, it was built on the compression algorithms we had been using we've been using compression since the 80s yeah, since yeah. the early 80s and so it was built on top of that whole compression uh, stack that we had and uh, quantizing all the, all the things down and motion that uh, uh, was MPEG we borrowed a lot of stuff from MPEG right. as well Okay, now, from a creative point of view, how was the decision made to use video at all? 
How does uh, the go? CD-ROM. We have a new medium, which is the CD-ROM. It has a ton of space. What are we going to fill it with? Right. You're not going to put, you know, maps weren't even, they were fractions of megabytes. You're not going to put 1,400 maps in the game. That's, you'll never get it done. Right. So what are you going to fill it with? And right. so it's like, well, we, we, but you look back at Dune 2. We had little animated sequences in Dune 2 also, mm-hmm. and, and in Eye of the Beholder. So we've always wanted to do video. Yeah. Um, so it was just was the obvious thing is like, oh, we got all this space. Let's go do all these interstitials that'll help us tell the story. Right. And we, we always felt the strategy games desire, uh, desire and need a story. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of folks, you know, would still to this day say they don't, it doesn't matter. I don't care about the story. It's like, well, you don't think you care about the story, but you know, when you're 10 hours into something, you start to care about why you, you may not, you just, at some point it's, it's what the, what is important, but the why is equally important. Right. So how do you, so at this point you're making video, you're also now, a sort of a video production company, or yeah. using one, or whatever. How well, no, actually, we hired uh, we hired Joseph Kukin, who was uh-huh. our local. He he used to run the local uh, theaters uh-huh. in town, um, and you know he was an accomplished uh, <clears throat> accomplished theater director mm-hmm. and uh, actor. <clears throat> and um, Joe Kukin um, came in, and we hired him. Originally, we hired him just to do the job to uh, to cast it and do the the video, because uh, we were pretty clearly not actors. Um, <laughs> But we said, look, we have to use internal staff. We don't have the budget to go yeah. building a lot of uh, going out and hiring a bunch of stuff. So he came in to produce it and do everything. And, you know, he argued heavily, you need to hire professionals, all this. So let's cast for at least the major roles. Yeah. So the the main guy who would give you reports was uh, a local actor. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the actors in the game were like a local weatherman. And so people were comfortable in front of the camera. And we judiciously used a lot of staff for uh, anything that was non-speaking parts and everything where we, we could get away with it. Sure. Um, and then uh, some people like the the voice of Eva was uh, um, um, Eva uh, was uh, um, uh, Kaya Hunsinger, who's uh, Kaya Montgomery now. So she was my assistant and uh, the, mm. our controller, basically. Right. So you have all these different people that that end up being in these these games, um, and they're not really professionals, but they, they end up being pretty good because Joe is a really good director. Right. So Joe is casting for Kane and he's casting all these people and we're watching them. We, we had designs. John Malkovich had no way, too expensive. Right. You know, so we started looking at all these actors. We said, well, there's no way we can hire anybody. And we, we had true, truly pretty talented actors reading for it. And on all the tapes and in all the interviews, um, you know, all the auditions, you'd hear Joe say, oh, no, he would say it like this and he would say Kane's words and, and then the guy would do it. And he'd go, no, 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 it's something like this. And after a while, Brett and I are like, well, couldn't you just be Kane? I mean, you're doing a really good job. Right. And he goes, well, yeah. He goes, I, I, I don't want to cast myself. That's kind of the classic mistake of most directors. <laughs> but uh, but sure, if you guys think I'm good enough for it and are the right person for it, we said, I think you're awesome. You're great. So that's how that role happened was really he was the best Kane. <laughs> right. you know, so uh, so that, that's how we got production started. Really, it all, all goes back to Joe. I mean, Joe... Kukin brought us to a professional standard very, very rapidly. We built our own green screen cyclorama. Um, I had that background in architecture, so we designed an entire uh, studio interior design with uh, Eric Gooch and built most of it ourselves. Uh, contractors wanted way too much money, so we just literally went out there and slung hammers ourselves and built the whole thing and um, wow. ran all the wiring. I mean, we had we had a crazy wiring scheme in our studio because we had all this motion capture. It was extremely sensitive to the electromagnetics. And so uh, we had to isolate all of the home runs back to the, the, the boxes and light up a shit ton of amps, you know, wow. which most people would never do either. So we we just really went overboard all over the place. And, wow. uh, it must have, been a, must have been an exciting time for the company. I mean, it you was. Were, yeah. You were doing all sorts of new stuff. and Yeah. 
Blade Runner we did. Um, yeah, I wanted that one. Oh, gosh, Blade Runner. God, it's a huge number of motion capture sequences. I don't even remember now. Yeah. 3,600 motion capture sequences or something ridiculous. Thousands, anyways. Thousands right, of motion right. capture sequences. Um, and at the time, you know, the, the, con, the common way of doing motion capture was you would do your motion capture session and then you would give it to a bunch of people who would clean it up, which yep. is basically fix all the errors. Mm-hmm. Um, and it would take some number of weeks. And so uh, we said, no, 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 no. We want to make it real time. Where while we're doing the filming, we're actually, it's cleaning it as it goes, automated, so that it's as close as per- possible. So all you're really doing is tweaking things a little bit here and there. And um, so we, st- we started on down that path. And Vicon was really interested in being a partner with us because they had these, uh, what they called quad plane cameras or something, which was basically, at the time, cameras were 60 hertz, um, and uh, they were uh, single re- or video resolution. Mm-hmm. So these were double, they were high resolution, so they were double the, double the resolution vertically and horizontally, so hence the quad, and they were 120 hertz instead of 60 hertz. So we said, wow, awesome, let's hook up a bunch of these things. Well, there just wasn't hardware to take that data. It was, it was really, really tough. So we had to buy super high-end SGI machines just to take all the data in, just to be able to capture it all. And then you had to have decent processor, so it would actually capture it all in one machine and be streaming it into the memory and then pushing it off after, um, after capturing it, pushing it out to another machine that would um, start um, looking for the, 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 trying to identify the individual balls and carry them through the optic, because it was all optical capture. Um, so it was a really complicated system to get uh, what was essentially, you would do a take, and within about 10 or 15 seconds, the computers would catch up and you'd have it, you'd have it on screen. You could watch the take. So that was like unthinkable back in, we started that in 95. Right. So there's just, we were way ahead of the game. So by the time we did Blade Runner in 97, we were, so we were actually capturing real time for almost all the Blade Runner stuff. Right. And then we ended up doing a capture for a lot of other EA studios because we got bought by EA in 98 <clears throat> and, uh, you know, we were doing motion capture for all the, the Command and Conquer stuff. And at that point, then we were actually doing camera tracking. So we would have the balls on the cameras. So we could move a camera through the set. Mm-hmm. And the motion capture system would ca- track the camera as an actor. And then we would go and map that to the computer graphics. So you could actually have a camera that would dolly or train through a 3D set with green behind it. And because we knew where the camera was, <clears throat> we could map the 3D render camera in there too. And that way you could have like guys walking in front of a corridor and the corridor would be mapped perfectly into uh, yeah. 3D space. So we, we re- invented a lot of things that little known to us were, were being invented in California probably at the same time or before, right. but they were all hush-hush at Digital Domain and all these other mm-hmm. companies. So we were just, once again, just being the forefronters of finding new ways to do shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, did, did motion capture change the way you could, how did it change the way you can make games? Um, well, it, now you didn't have to hand animate everything, right? Yeah, yeah, just, well, it created heavy, heavy data, mm-hmm. so that was one negative, but, um, but it helped the animators quite a bit to get a lot of you know, human animation fast. Um, so we had already done Lion King, so we knew, were very experienced with cell animation, mm-hmm. um, and we knew 3D animation with rigging and stuff like that, but at the end of the day, it was like, wow, the only way you're going to get something that even resembles human motion in large volumes is through motion capture. Um, And we had just, toward the end of Westwood in Vegas, we were starting to work with um, volume capture. Mm. Um, Because we had a real, we had thought from early on um, that it would be better using an infrared camera, capturing um, the entire scene at high rates, pixel by pixel, and then reassembling that as uh, the, as a physical model. Right. Um, I was, at the time, thinking morph targets, but uh, obviously now you could you can um, interpolate the rigs and 
to the rigging and all that. So we invented a bunch of techniques um, around it, and it changed everything about the way we did the art, which was the question you had, which is how did it change? It changed everything because now we were, the artists were really modelers, textures, um, to some degree riggers. You had to, you still, even though you captured all the stuff, you still had to have the bones affect the model in a way that was believable, which is, you know, the 3D software really hadn't caught up to the technology of the capture. When you watched the the skeletal structures moving inside our screens, they were perfectly human. I yeah. mean, the, you could, in our studio, you could hold a single ball on your hand out and hold your hand steady. And to our eyes, we'd look at it and say, okay, that's perfectly steady. When you watched it, yeah. you'd see the ball moving around. Mm -hmm. Even though it was, you'd go, well, it's moving around. There's errors in the system. And I go, no, no, no. Zoom out to where the ball is the actual right size. It's perfectly steady. You zoom all the way in. We were capturing sub millimeter motion, mm -hmm. you know, of those little kind of scalar uh, adjustments. So we had we were even dealing with like eye tracking and a bunch of stuff. I and mean, we were it was we were <laughs> like way ahead of our game, you know. Yeah. Um, so it changed how we did things. Uh, we did those games. We did. Uh, is know. it is sort of a high level? Does it mean like your games have a bigger scope? Sort of. I mean, like. Um, Having your own motion capture studio that's just there to fire up anytime you want, your own filming sets, your own things, uh -huh. allows you to be more like a movie production studio so you can mm -hmm. create uh, linear assets much quicker right. at the time. Nowadays, um, I would argue you could do the same thing and have real-time assets. I mean, you... Yeah. 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 Let's talk about Blade Runner a little bit. Yeah, sure. So how, did that, how did that project happen? So, uh, you know, Brett, Brett loved Dune. We got a chance to do uh -huh. Dune. I was a D&D &D nut. I was a DM for 16 years, so... Um, <clears throat> love the fact that we got uh, Dungeons and Dragons. And so what else could you do with your life? Well, my favorite film of all time was Blade Runner. Yeah. I love Blade Runner. I used to watch it all the time and mm -hmm. just uh, everything about it is the visual presentation. I was so, uh, had done the Stan McKee story sequences and stuff like that. So I knew film noir really well. And I was just, it was so artfully crafted. It was just such a brilliant film. Mm -hmm. And so I don't, I'm sure there are, I'm sure there were, uh, certainly, and, and still are bigger fans than me, but not many, right? You know, I was certainly a nerded out, uh, Blade Runner fan. And, um, Martin Alper called one time and Brett said, Hey, Hey, I know you love Blade Runner. I love it too. Martin just called and said that they're shopping the property. Mm. And I go, Oh my God, that's amazing. Yeah. We have to do it. Right. So we sat down and we had a big brainstorming session and said, well, what do we want to do? And, you know, I mean, I think half the ideas in the room was, yeah, like Logan's run, you're running around shooting people. And I'm like, yes, yeah, so not, not Blade Runner. That's not Blade Runner, you know? Uh, and so I went out and I made an impassioned pitch to everybody and said, look, I think it needs to be a game about terror. Uh, if you look at Alien and you look at Blade Runner, Ridley Scott does a brilliant job of creating the presumption of massive explosive violence, but nothing happens. Right. And it creates this incredible tension. And so you need something to do while you're terrorized. <laughs> but I don't, it's not horror and it's not action, right? It's this is Ridley Scott, this is not James Cameron, right? Yeah. Um, or Michael Bay, right? It's not about big explosions. Um, yeah. So uh, so I said, look, we, we need to recreate. I, I, one of the things that's brilliant about Blade Runner is the, the visual presence. We need to yeah. recreate it at that level of quality. 1985, or 1995, um, you know, 3D systems could put 100 polygons on the screen. There was yeah. like zero chance you were going to get a 3D system to look decent. Yeah. So how are we going to do it? I said, well, we have this great compression technology. Let's push it to its limits and let's pre-render all of the environments in loops and then in real time composite in all of the elements and so yeah. um and so we started talking about that as like an animated animation animated uh adventure game mm -hmm. and i said yeah but it has to be a simulator and it was i can go on and on about blade runner because i could spend all of our time talking about it <laughs> but the idea was it had to be a detective story mm -hmm. because it's a detective story it can't be an adventure game where you 
go right and then you just reload the game and go left. Yeah. That's not in it. There's no detecting there at that point. It's just trial and error. Um, so we wanted to have something that was very malleable and flexible. We were big into simulators. So I said, let's simulate a story. Let's put around it um, distinct acts, five act play, a five act story. Beginning of the first act is a positive. The ending of the second act is negative. Third one's a positive. Fourth one's negative. Fifth one's a big crescendo positive. Because it has to end on a positive or you won't feel like you finished the game. We've learned that a long okay. time ago. Hmm. It's very hard to make a game end negative if people have reload. Because they'll just reload it and keep right. trying. Yeah, thinking they did, I did something wrong, right? Yeah. And it's very hard even to make an act end on a negative note without feeling like I had to do something else. So we, we explored all that. So we put this whole thing together and had a concept... And then Aaron got onto 3D stuff and he recreated the sequence of flying in to uh, uh, L.A. 2019, I think it was, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe not. I don't remember the date now. I should remember that, but 2012 might have been. Uh, it, was, it was right around now. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so um, in comes the, the spinner and everything with the lights flashing and all this, and it's perfect. So then we go to Virgin to pitch this. Now, I didn't know at the time that Virgin had already, or that uh, Blade Runner partnership, uh, Josh Goodfriend, had already gone, and Bud Yorkin had already gone and pitched this to EA and to um, Activision. And as far as I know, there were multiple people, because I've had multiple people come up to me and say, we had that deal and you guys stole it from us, <laughs> right? Uh, but they I, they had already decided, I suppose, on, on what they were going to do, but they but Virgin, out of respect for Branson and everybody else, are going to come take a look. Mm -hmm. We walk in there, we sit down, and we said, okay, well, let, let us show you what we want to do with Blade Runner. We pop in the videotape, uh, beta SP tape, and it starts off and it starts playing, and they're watching it, and they're kind of like sitting there like, and he starts looking at it, he goes, wait, that's not the film. And we go, no, that's the game. And they're like, then all of a sudden they ha we had their attention, right? You know, they're leaning into the screen and the, the spinner comes in and it lands and the camera starts to pan around the world and it, and then it comes up and says Blade Runner, you know, coming, I think we were 1996. Of course, we didn't get shipped until 97. Ah, you know, yeah. 1996 or whatever, like that fall 1996. And, and I said, and, and then we had a, a slideshow of, it's a it's a detective game. It's a story simulator. It's new and innovative. Mm -hmm. It's about terror. It's about you know living in the world. And we had a couple mock-ups of what we thought the game would look like, and they were still screens. And we assumed that we would just have to do still adventure you know style. And so they were like, okay, yeah. They right. walked off, and we got the deal. And uh, then we really pushed it. We did all the characters with voxels, um, so mm -hmm. we could actually have the camera moving through the world. Yeah. Uh, we did what is now called um, deferred rendering. Basically, mm -hmm. we pre-rendered all the loops of everything, compressed them, had the normal vectors of all the blocks, had the depth encoded with everything, so we could actually composite in three-dimensional space um, sequences that had been pre-rendered. Uh, and to my, to my knowledge, nobody's ever done it again. <laughs> uh, but it created a, an amazing, amazing experience, which was... Uh, which was true to the film. Uh, and I think the biggest compliment we could ever have for Blade Runner is I never got a single piece of hate mail from the fan. Wow. So, yeah, um, well, that's, that's and, impressive. And so a game like that, uh, you know... How did, the, you... how did the dynamic part of the story work? Because what I've always heard about the game is that you don't necessarily even know if you're a replicant or one of the other you characters. Or yes. Like, so... And it can, <laughs> can change from game to game, right? Like that's, It changes uh, every game, yeah. That sounds crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. So the story, <laughs> the story has... Uh, I was either five or seven, fuzzy on the numbers now, but I think it was five replicants, potential replicants. Potential, okay. uh, might have been seven. I think it was seven. The first and the last are always replicants. Sure. Um, and okay. the reason for that is um, we wanted that poignant speech at the end where the 
protagonist switches from Deckard to Roy Batty, and okay. he's giving that talk on the rooftop. So we yeah, wanted yeah. that our own character, uh, Clovis. We wanted Clovis to have that moment of speech where he becomes aware. Yeah. And for that to be possible, he has to be a replicant. Yeah. Uh, because we were changing the rules on everybody, the first character we wanted to be a replicant because we felt it was just grossly unfair to start the game off and you don't even know where you stand. So uh, Zubin, who was the butcher guy, was the first and, and Clovis was the last. And then the others in between were, were randomly generated at the beginning of the game, unbeknownst to you. Uh, so the world was set up where, uh, because it is the Blade Runner world, we didn't invent the world, but the world was the world of Blade Runner. There are people that are sympathetic to replicants that are human, mm-hmm. and there are people that are uh, anti-replicant, we call them skin jobs and racism. It really is to explore a lot of themes, very serious right. themes. So we said, okay, um, the behavior of a character that is a replicant or a behavior of a character that is a replicant sympathizer are sufficiently similar mm-hmm. to where that can be modeled as a behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, the behavior of a replicant hater is very obvious or you know yeah. very clear. Um, and then if you're employing a replicant to hunt replicants, the behavior of that versus a person who's human that hates replicants is not terribly different either. Mm-hmm. So we had the anchorings of, okay, we, we know how to make characters behave consistent with their character. There would be subtle differences based on whether they were actually a replicant or not. And that was actually the fun of being a Blade Runner was... Of course, you're going to take a person aside. They look like a human. They act like a human. They behave like a human. But you have to decide, are they a replicant? You have your void conf machine that gives you the confidence level. But more or less, I mean, really, by the time you got a guy sitting in a chair across from you, assuming he's not armed, (laughs) right, like Leon was, (laughs) but he's sitting across from you, by that time, you pretty much know what you wanted. So you have to divine the rest of it out in the field. And most of them aren't going to come quietly. Most of them are going to shoot back. So the whole point of the game was you start the game off you're told that you're human mm-hmm. and that you're hunting replicants. Very quickly, you're teased with the idea that you may not be human. Right. You may be a replicant that was hired or that was created for the sole purpose of hunting replicants, which is the whole fun of the Blade Runner story. Mm-hmm. Uh, meanwhile, the people you're hunting may or may not be replicants. They might have come from off-world or they might be local guys that have helped the replicants. And so you kill a human that's against the law. You kill a replicant. And so the game was insanely difficult in that sense because you had to do a lot of detecting yeah. because the clues were very subtly different. And so you'd have to go, well, okay, I have to, first of all, determine this person's definitely a replicant sympathizer, but are they human or a replicant? I've got to get enough clues, get enough eyewitnesses, get enough things or to get some evidence to say, okay, this person came from off-world. Well, if they came from off-world, they were definitely a replicant, but they were always and always the smoking gun. Right. So meanwhile, while you're moving through the world trying to be a detective, real slow pace, point-and-click adventure, these characters just walk on the screen and start shooting at you. You know, like, oh, shit. And you got to shoot. Oh, sorry. You got, <laughs> you got to shoot back. You know, you got to shoot back quickly and fire and, and get, uh, you know, get after them right away. Did I, did I ruin your... Is it still working? No. Nope, okay, sorry. So, yeah, so you got to chase them down. You know, you got to do something about this. And so... Um, the idea that you would click on the screen and you'd be mm-hmm. your eyes were you're watching the screen intently and it, for just to run if something was going wrong. I mean that created that terror, that yeah. tension that we wanted from the film, and that's how we pitched it to to yeah. to Bud and and, uh, so did, and Josh. So did that mean that a lot of the specific scenes, like you kind of essentially had two versions of them that were? Oh no, they weren't. They weren't versions. They were characters that were running scripts. Okay. That were so behavior the scene scripts. Was the same, but the, the characters would act a little different. The, scre- the scenes were the same, the same, same yeah. but um, the characters would come in and out and walk in and out of the screen. Uh-huh. They were all on. They were all wandering on their own AI. But would there be like 
clues like in the scene that would be different well they would talk to each other and they would pass things on they would have eyewitnesses and so you would have like the you would find the brooch that was the dragonfly brooch that was in the strip club Mm -hmm. and that would remind you you have this kaya called uh, the um, knowledge information agent Mm -hmm. which was like a pda that would collect all the clues for you Mm -hmm. and organize them so it would help you kind of make sense of it all and uh, what was great about that was you literally didn't know you had no way you never knew really you had to just keep collecting clues but in the in behind the scenes in the code the character knew if they were replicant or human right um there was nobody else who was confused like you were well if you behaved in a way that was sympathetic to the replicant so i'll give you an example you go and you've run into zoom and the very first thing he you start to ask him questions because it's an, an adventure game you could just click on him and he yeah. would start asking questions he gets agitated he throws the the knife at you you dodge it he runs out the back door you chase after him in the alleyway right well as you're chasing after him you know the first thing most people do is they pull out their gun, they chase after him, He's running. you're running with your gun. Yeah. You run into the alleyway with your gun, and you've cornered him, and he's ready to fight or flight. Well, if you put your gun away, which, of course, is not the obvious thing to do. Yeah. Sorry. Um, if you put your gun away, the, um, the Zubin stops instead of attacking you and says, what do you want with me? Mm-hmm. And you go, just take it easy, big fella. And all of a sudden, your character switches into sympathizer mode. So as a player, you never knew to do that. But if you ever played the game all the way through and you go, hey, I wonder what happened if I didn't kill that first guy. Well, you didn't have to kill him. In fact, you never have to kill anybody in the game. You can play the entire game as a pacifist all the way through. And you can play the pass as a pacifist who catches all the replicants and turns them into the police. You can play it as a pacifist who kills all the replicants or basically captures them at the end for extermination or whatever. So it's like this... This really weird, you can be, I'm sorry, you can be as a pacifist that helps them escape, you can be a pacifist that, that helps them get captured, that helps them get captured. And either way, you're, there's all this tension in the game because you're you're pushing against the police force who have a very brutal view of the whole thing. Right. You have a partner who starts to, suspicious, starts to become suspicious that you're a sympathizer. Right. My favorite ending, there are 37 or 47 endings, I can't miss mm-hmm. somebody, but dozens of endings. Um, my favorite ending is where you go through the whole game as a replicant sympathizer, saving all the replicants and everything, and you're careful not to kill any of the police officers. Mm-hmm. And the very the corrupt one you can kill because he yeah. actually tries to shoot you first. So you can go through there. You, could, you like Han, you can't shoot first, right? <laughs> so, anyways, you get to the very end of the, of the game and you're in the, the shuttle. Everybody buckles in. You t- take off the buckles, pull out your gun, and just shoot everybody. You got to be really quick. You shoot yeah. everybody in the shuttle, right? And you kill everybody. This is the moment, the animated sequence that's supposed to be where you save them all, take them off, or you shoot everybody. And right afterward, the game goes into a cinematic where the uh, McCoy walks out of the of the shuttle, and your your uh, your partner Crystal, she's got the shotgun over her shoulder. She starts walking up. She goes. She goes, Slick, I didn't know you had it in you, right? <laughs> and there's this whole sequence of you you basically hook up with her as now your love interest and you wander off into the sunset being a complete brutal jerk <laughs> that had pretended to be their friend, you know? So uh, I love that one because wow. it was such a total flip, you know? Right, right, right. And that's how we built the whole game. We built the game around, okay, well, what if I'm really extremely Rambo? We call them Rambo and Gandhi, right? Mm-hmm. If I'm re- extremely Rambo and I decide to start turning into Gandhi, or if I'm Gandhi, I go Rambo. So part of it is you can't let witnesses survive, or you can't do things where there are witnesses, and you know, because the actor would see something and it would say, "I know that piece of information." It would tell other people. Um, wow, that sounds really complicated. It actually it was, uh, and, <laughs> and it would pass the information along, and then the act, the individual actors themselves, we call them actors, would um, 
would modify the information so they would intentionally mislead you. Yeah. So uh, not only did we make a game where you had to collect clues and you had to be very careful about what you what was factual, we actually let you collect second and third and fourth hand information and it would have a confidence rating of how true it was and mm -hmm. the game would lie to you, yeah. right? Because of course if one of the replicants got a piece of information, they would they would tell you and, and you're talking to a replicant sympathizer, a replicant sympathizer would say, "Oh yeah, no, I've never, I, I've seen that guy for 15 years. He's been around a long time. He just, he's a drifter, comes in and out, totally yeah. lie to you, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, because he was hiding the fact that he was from Offworld." Well, as a player, you know, the first time you get those clues, you're just trusting it yeah. like gospel, and then you go to research the next thing, and you talk to somebody, and they go, "Oh yeah, no, that that fishmonger, he's been on the sides of replicants forever. You can't trust a thing he said." You're like, "Wait a minute, what?" <laughs> you know, so that's why the game was so fun. Yeah, oh, that's interesting. So. You go through all these different characters, and the ones who could be or might be replicant or might not be replicant. At some point, I assume you have to make a choice. Well, yeah. I mean, you have right. to you have to either arrest them, right? Right. And, and is that where all the different endings came from? You kind of go in through each one. No, like, actually, you right or not, or more about more about you. Well, it was it was how who was replicant, who wasn't, and uh -huh. who you could escape with and who you couldn't. We really liked the idea of Deckard in the movie who goes off with uh, Rachel. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we had our own character Lucy, who was kind of like a, you were like a father figure. Um, and so it wasn't a sexual relationship, but it was a uh, it was a yeah. things. And then you had Zora, uh, the the Zora character. I can't remember her name now, but you had different characters. So you had you had three possible love interests that you could um, you could end the game early with Crystal. You know, if, if you had one Crystal steal over, she you could say, you know what, let's just end this whole thing. Let's go off together. So you could actually win the hearts of love interests. So those were three uh, romantic endings, and there were the. You know, I'm done with this. I'm fed up. Table flip. I'm out of here. There was the I'm running off on my own into the sunset because I think I'm a replicant. That's one. Yeah. I don't think I'm a replicant. That's the other, yeah, right? Yeah. You know, and I'm 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 sickened by this whole thing. I'm sickened by hum by humanity and mm -hmm. and so all of these different things were. Um, but did these... the game like when you're when you're trying to decide who's a replicant or not? If you choose wrong, does the game the game keeps going? Yeah. The, well, just, you it just the, deals with that consequence. Well, if you're caught by the police at that point, then you can kill humans. Okay. Once you start killing humans and the police know you've killed humans okay. and you're captured, you're done. Okay, That's an ending, right? Because right. you're going to get incarcerated. Right, <laughs> but, right. but, uh, and probably killed actually because the police have no no things. But once you, if you ever killed the police officer and there were witnesses and they went back, you were done. There was yeah. no way you were going to ever negotiate with the police. They were not going to negotiate. Um, and then they would immediately put out an APB. In fact, part of the beats of the story is you were absolutely, um, the, halfway through the story, they put out a report that you're a rogue replicant hunting replicants, right. whether it's true or not, true right? Or not. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. In fact, actually, we never answer the question of whether you are a replicant or not, because if you play the game as a replicant, the game reacts to you because of your behavior as if you're a replicant. Right. If you play the game as a human, the game reacts to you as a human because you've behaved like a human. <clears throat> right. Yeah. Well, it's... It was really complicated, but yeah. it was well, that's glorious. With, yeah, that's great. I mean, it's very, very in keeping with the movie, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. That's, that's, well, that was the whole thing. More human than human, you know, what what, what does it mean to be human? And um, and we would, every time with each, like, one of the things I mentioned was hard, is how do you make a negative ending? Well, so at the end of the first one, you're hunting a replicant. And whether you, if they're a replicant and you're supposed to kill them, you turn a corner and Crystal has killed him already. Mm. And so it steals, it robs the moment from you. Mm -hmm. And she's like, you're always just a little bit too late, Slick. You know, and she's like, just rides you terribly. You're like, damn it, that doesn't feel good. Right. And you'd reload it and you'd realize once you reload it and you try to reload, you realize there's no way I can't possibly get there. Mm -hmm. You're a little mad at the game, but it's a negative emotion, right? Mm -hmm. On this, By the same token, if you were trying to save them, mm -hmm. right? And you're trying to be the hero, 
and she kills them, you obviously don't feel very good about that, right? Uh, so it was a way of, of orchestrating all of the extremes and making sure that no matter which way you went, the end of that first chapter was less than satisfying. Mm-hmm. You, you knew you did the right thing. You knew you were following the right path because the game gave you plenty of feedback. And the, and the story moved on. The, the act two, you know, you're moving on. So you know the story moved on, very Maj Saga. We were very clear that the story moved on. Right. And you just assume that whatever you, is you did was what the designer intended. Yeah. How, do you have a sense <clears throat> of how many people, like, real... That's the right way to put this. Understood. Like, I can imagine <laughs> if someone didn't know this, this high-level concept, that they might just play the game one time. Most people didn't know the concept. Most yeah. people played the game through one time. and They thought, like, well, that's the game. Yeah, that was the game. So uh, Johnny Wilson wrote my favorite review of uh, Computer Gaming World of Blade Runner. He wrote, the first part of his review was, uh, and I'm paraphrasing a bit, um, Johnny, forgive me, Johnny, if you hear this, but because I'm, I'm not as eloquent as him, but he said something on the effect of, um, I always play, whenever I play a game, I always play it through once as a consumer to get yeah. the expression of it so that I can understand what it would feel like. And then I play it through to write my review and I take all my notes. I don't try to take the notes when I play it the first time because I don't really want to um, taint the experience by having to pause and think about yeah. things and all that. He goes, so when I played Blade Runner through the first time, I thought, this is a really good adventure game. Uh, pretty good. Then I played it through the second time and realized this was a brilliant game. And why? Mm-hmm. And then he wrote, went on to explain to the reader why it was that he tried to play the game the second time, the first, well, he, he started to play it and then things weren't behaving the same, same way. way. And so he's like, okay, wait a minute, let me reload and start over and deliberately try to do what I thought I remember doing. And then as he kept doing that, he kept trying and he kept realizing, wait a minute, this game is different. Yeah. Not even, not even different. Like it's different because of what I did. That would have been just multi-branching. It's different period. Yeah. Like it's not behaving the same way. And that was uh, probably, that was Computer Gaming World, well-read circulation. So I think <clears throat> many people who might not have finished the game, most people don't finish games, truthfully. Anyway, yeah, yeah. So many might have just said, wait a minute, let me go back and reload that game and start a second game and see what, and I think a lot of people went back and replayed the first part a couple of times. Right, right. But as far as all the way through, I don't think there were that many that played all the way through and felt like they missed anything. They probably finished the game feeling satisfied. Right. That was the goal. Yeah. You definitely can't imagine this, the scenario of like two friends who basically play the game and talk about it afterwards and were yeah. confused about like... Oh, it happens all the time. Yeah. <laughs> the test department hated me. I mean, they love me, they hated me, but yeah. it's like, how are we supposed to test this? Yeah. We don't even have... Because there were things like, happening behind the scenes that you couldn't control. The, do you feel like you should have messaged that a little bit more in the marketing? That, um, like every playthrough is different? Or? You know, the game was so beautifully uh, crafted, and I think the marketing was wonderful. Mm-hmm. The, the marketing pushed really hard on the are you human, are you replicant? Okay. Uh, we had these big parties in Europe where they you would you would have to choose to go upstairs to be a replicant or downstairs to be a human, and yeah. you know, and you would have badges on you that would tell you whether you're a human or replicant. You could order different drinks and stuff. I mean, the the, the whole promotion and marketing, everything about the game was, this is going to blow you away visually. Right. The audio, the visual. Frank did a beautiful job on the audio. I mean, uh, the Vangelis recreation was just uh, fantastic. Um, mm-hmm. Everything had to be recreated. We couldn't use any of the original assets. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Um, so it really was uh, a crafting, a beautiful piece of craftsmanship. So I don't think that replayability was ever really that, that wasn't the point. Uh-huh. Like it is replayable, but that's not the point. The point was, how do you make a real detective story? Well, you can't make a real detective story if it's a linear set of choices because it becomes trial and error. There's no, 
pretty quickly you realize that oh if I got the if I got the guess wrong I just guess yeah it exactly so that's why I was wondering about like asking about like those gating questions of like you have to make a choice right yeah. because that's the issue there are plenty of adventure games that are detective stories and that's what sure. they are right like you keep working at it until you get the right answer right but forward. they're not really detective yeah, stories. Yeah, I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't particularly enjoy those games. But like, the reason you know, they're not a detective the story is because there is a right answer. Yeah. Um, and a true detective story, a true detective immersive story, in my opinion, is that there you don't know there isn't one, and you don't know what the outcome is. What the so if you were going to do like a true crimes thing, you would have to have multiple suspects, any of which could be the suspect, mm -hmm. and it's different. Every time you play who did do it, that's how you'd have to do a real detective story, in my mind. Right. Otherwise, you're not really doing any detecting. You're just trial and erroring until you get to the end. Right, right. Cool. Um, all right, well... Really so, fun game. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I can tell you have a lot of passion for it. For oh, me. yeah, yeah, I love it. Yeah, I've always wanted to make one another one, but it's just been... It hasn't come around. Uh, yeah. That one... There's a couple that I really would love to revisit. Uh, you know, I love that game. I'd love to go do another... Um, another role-playing game because I think uh, mm. a role-playing uh, combat game I think is yeah. fun and um, you know there's, there's just I, I have lots of ideas I, I loved making a platformer game so I have an idea that I'm working on with an indie guy sure. uh, indie studio on to try to do a platformer because uh, I love working on Lion King so Lion King Blade Runner these these forms art forms are really exciting to me yeah cool so yeah. was the uh, this next probably would be around the time of the EA purchase is that right yeah, well, actually, uh, Blade Runner was right at the time of EA. Okay. So EA bought us in 1998. And okay. so, so how did that um, how did that come about? Uh, yeah, it was it was really interesting. Um, you know, Virgin uh, well, Virgin had sold um, Virgin sold a portion of of uh, the whole company VIE to uh, Hasbro. Mm -hmm. um, then um, Hasbro divested their interest, and Virgin sold 100 percent to uh, Viacom. Mm -hmm. And then Viacom owned us. And during those years, from 95 to 98, uh, Westwood delivered Command & Conquer, Monop well, 94, Lion King, Monop uh, 95, Monopoly, Command & Conquer, 96, uh, Lands of Lore 2 or 3, another mm -hmm. Kyrandia. Yeah. Um, I mean, we were just pumping yeah, out yeah. games. Yeah. So um, Virgin, as a studio, had grown in L.A. and in um, Europe, uh, hadn't really delivered any final products. They, they weren't finishing games. Um, I'm not going to disparage. At the end of the day, they just they didn't ship. Yeah. So uh, part of it was certainly because the people trying to make games in those studios had heads of studio or heads of the organization that were constantly kind of jiggering, jaggering things and changing budgets and like everybody laments. Um, and part of it was the teams were being built and trying to do very aspirational things really, really rapidly. Um, and so they're and and honestly, Westwood was this seasoned developer that was pumping out game after game, and everybody was trying to say, okay, we need to make our standards as high as we can. So at the end of the day, at the first two years of being part of, of Westwood, being part of Virgin, I think we were the only ones who shipped games. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, following that, the next two years, there was a couple of things like Toonstruck and others that just didn't work. Um, so Virgin lost a lot of money, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of money. Um, and very, very close to shutting down everything, including Westwood at the time, Viacom was tired of losing money. Mm -hmm. And they said, look, we're just going to take all of this development cost. We're going to write it all down, take a huge loss, write it off against the profits of the company and just call it a day. <clears throat> and Michelle DiLorenzo, who was the operating officer at the time, uh, was looking at Westwood because Westwood freakishly, because Westwood accidentally, because Westwood was broken out 
as a separate division only because of our earnout. Otherwise, we would have just we would just been amalgamated, right? Uh We would have never known. You could clearly see what Westwood was delivering from a PL point of view, and it's like, wait a minute, you know, you're doing 140 million dollars of business in a 70 million dollar. pre-tax profit that's not a bad business right? you know so that's awesome yeah what the hell and so suddenly they started looking at the whole thing and they're saying well actually we can sell westwood um there were definitely some people virgin that felt like uh i don't know even tim cheney had said at one point that we had thrown them under the bus but the reality was we didn't have any choice we sold the company lock stock and barrel yeah. we didn't own it the choice we had was we could quit mm-hmm. uh, out of spite i mean sure we could do that we could threaten to quit if they sold the company but I'm not going to do that to the you know 200 souls that work for me. That's yeah. totally unfair. You know, no matter how much you would hate it. Now, on the other hand, we didn't have to get sold to anybody. We could have some choice in the matter. So uh, at the end, at the very end, uh, was uh, Hasbro, Electronic Arts, and Microsoft that were bidding for us. Mm-hmm. So it was a three-way bid. We didn't want to sell Westwood. Viacom wanted to sell Westwood. Yeah. We didn't want to break away from Virgin. In fact, we fought very hard to keep the Virgin Studio in, in Irvine mm-hmm. um, because. Uh, those guys, we made commitments to them and we wanted to keep the development. Um, yes, we didn't save the marketing and the sales organization. We love those guys. We really do. Um, I know some of them were cheesed about it, but at the end of the day, it wasn't our choice. We, yeah. we To keep the development studio together, we just had to do what we had to do. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So that's why we sold to EA. Um, yeah. Did you have a, Were you involved in being able to make the choice between Microsoft? Um, I was involved in the six negotiations that were going on. Uh, okay. Myself and my, my partner's part contract was one mm-hmm. for three companies. And then the sale, which was the other, for three companies. So yeah. I actually orchestrated six simultaneous deals. <clears throat> Thankfully for my sanity, it went to four because mm-hmm. Hasbro fell out when the price got over $100 million. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, then we basically just had to get it done. And literally Sunday night... Um, Got a call from EA's general counsel and said, look, we're having the board meeting tomorrow. As a general counsel, you won't give on this uh, non-compete non-compete clause for more than they wanted a five-year non-compete. And I'm like, might as well ask me to retire. Five right. years in the games industry, it's, it's forever. You know, it's all I know how to do. Um, so we won't do that. We'll do two, but we won't do five. Mm-hmm. And uh, she said, on this issue alone, given the amount of price we're paying and the, and the contract we have, I can't recommend it to the board. And I have to say that... Um, you know, because I can't recommend the board, they may not they may not vote for it. Um, I'm going to clearly articulate the issue, <clears throat> um, and I said, "Well, oh well." <laughs> and I think later uh, Ruth had talked to us and said, "You know, I I really appreciated the integrity. Most people, there was no amount of money. <clears throat> I mean, they were willing to put more money into the deal to to make us have a longer thing. I said, There's no amount of money that you're going to pay me to tell me that I'm going to retire. I'm not I'm not going to do it." Yeah. No, that's that's so, that's hard. That's like the one thing yeah. I'd have a hard time like valuing, like to actually stop working on games. Yeah, it's too too young. I mean, so you know, hard. nowadays maybe you could get me to do that, but yeah. probably not. I mean, <laughs> um, I mean, I don't know. I can't imagine. There's probably no number that you could tell me that. There's there's plenty of numbers where I'd probably choose to retire. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I go make games, right? But you couldn't tell me you can't do this. I mean, I I, I don't know that I could ever do that. I mean, it's just yeah. not not. Uh, it's just what I love to do. Yeah. So, uh, so anyways, uh, we w- we were sitting there waiting for the press release, the same as everybody mm-hmm. else, to just to figure out whether we were bought by EA or Microsoft. Because Microsoft was, if EA didn't vote for it that day, Microsoft had a bid in at at two o'clock. Mm-hmm. So EA had until one o'clock that day to close the deal. <laughs> yeah, and they ended up with us. So we became part of EA. Um, <clears throat> and then a lot of people blame EA for Westwood closing in. Um, you know, certainly that's part of it, um, but, you know, it, it came down to this. Um, Westwood had an ecosystem 
we had a group of people working on titles that were franchises. Well, mm -hmm. we had our 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 kind of um, incubator group, which was a, a, a set of talent that we would put on layups, uh, ports, uh, things we knew we could deliver. We'd let them learn and cut their teeth on it. And they'd always be overseen by somebody who was pretty senior, and we would mentor them and try to grow them. We had a group of people that would work on intellectual properties that loved working on other people's stuff. Maybe not terribly inventive, but really good at copying or you know emulating. And then we had our original teams that would work on original products. When we became part of EA. EA said, "Yeah, uh, we don't want any of that chaff. You know, we don't want any of this other stuff. Mm -hmm. We're not going to give you any intellectual property. We bought you to build intellectual property. So build it. Mm -hmm. Go build intellectual property and do the hard stuff." And so Brett and I, like every other time, ran into the gap and said, "Let's go build one of th three of thing three of." things that we've never built before, mm -hmm. and let's build them to the highest quality possible. And so um, we overreached, I mean, honestly, as a, as a group. Everybody was on board. Nobody can say that we, we did anything without fully discussing it with staff. But at the end of the day, we chose. We, we chose to go after some pretty hard targets. Um, so this means know. like the MMO. Yeah, we were building an MMO, Earth and Beyond. You know, we mm -hmm. were building um, an adventure, a uh, platform adventure, or not platform, but a 3D adventure game going after Mario on the mm -hmm. on the Sony, or Pat Crash Bandicoot, all those with the yeah. pirates. Uh, we were taking on um, the first-person shooters with Renegade. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, yeah. let's take the biggest and hardest genres and let's do all of them at once. You know? right, yeah, Meanwhile, yeah. we're still doing the Command and Conquers. You know yeah. I mean? It's like, uh, you know, we just... You know, throughout our history, we had managed to one-off do all these different things, and um, probably go before the fall. We thought we could just do everything, yeah. and um, you know, I'd like to. Uh, you know, it's it's easy to point point at EA and say, you know, they constrain the budgets, but you know that's true. But at the same time, we didn't deliver the products that yeah. had had the hits. Um, well, the truth is, no studios work nowadays the way you guys work. Back yeah. in the 90s where you were just jumping from genre to genre. Nobody does like, it. Like, yeah. like now people specialize. And like you that's, the industry yeah. has changed like, because it's so much harder to yeah. like compete now at the, at the top level, I think. Yeah, I think so. I think um, each one of those games I can point to why it didn't happen. Mm -hmm. And none of them were because we couldn't do it. It was because the people that were best at the thing we failed at were doing something else. Okay. I think honestly, I've, I've thought a lot about it over the years. And uh, we just tried to do too much. Yeah. We were just over, you know, got ahead of our skis. It's just, it's just the way, it's just the, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't by design. Certainly yeah. we didn't plan well, on that. I mean, to some extent, that's what you guys knew. You guys were used to working that way. And yeah, we didn't, and we didn't have the, see, if we had, if we had continued doing what we had done before and we had these projects where we could try things and make base hits and not have to swing for the fences, we could have tried a light MMO yeah. and failed a little bit or made one that was just mediocre. Mm -hmm. We could have tried these different games. But because of the the, the, dic the dictate from the mandate EA. from EA, mm -hmm. which is we only want AAA, that's yeah. all we expect out of you, and our own desire to do all these things, we went from a studio that carefully had one or two major projects going and three or four minors to five major projects simultaneously. Uh, it, it just... We just overextended, and we grew tremendously to yeah, do it. Yeah. We were we added another sixty people almost immediately. Um, <clears throat> we had already grown massively to try to deal with Earth and Beyond. Right. So, you know, we just and then there was a couple of things too. EA, so many things EA did too. Like we had a motion capture studio. They shut it down, mm -hmm. not because it wasn't by far the best and cheapest. It was because they had a huge investment in Vancouver. So, like, well, we have this huge investment in Vancouver. 
we have all our students, everybody has to use the thing we invested in. Yeah, We're sure. not interested in having your renegade little thing. It's like, well, we've always had this. It's like, yeah, well, sorry. We're pulling the plug. Yeah. So, you know, that kind of stuff, certainly you could say that that was meddling. But um, but mostly they didn't meddle with us. It wasn't EA. Yeah. It was, you know, it was myself and Brad. I take responsibility. Um, even the moving of the studio. I mean, we, we were talking about, um, at the time, in the studios that got attention got budget. And um, the executives EA would go on a tour to try to visit all the studios. And at the end of the day, Westwood wasn't always visited. EA, you know, Vegas was... They'd get on a plane, they'd fly to L.A., they'd fly to uh, Austin or whatever, and they'd go back and like, oh, well, West okay. They wouldn't stop by. Well, you don't have a voice at the table. You don't have a seat at the table. Pretty soon, EA is right. growing, and we're not. We're just not represented. So we started realizing, and I started realizing strategically, we have to be bigger, and we can't grow any faster in Vegas. We just can't. And so we need to consolidate the studios. We have to get all these studios in one place. I wanted to do it in Vegas and migrate as many people from SoCal as we could. Um, <clears throat> we had a big land deal that we were going to put together with a building and a campus and all this stuff because EA Vancouver was so successful they were like well let's build campuses meanwhile John Patter was trying to do that in LA at the end of the day our local politicians in Vegas wouldn't come to the table with a deal that was as good as LA hmm. so how do you blame that it's like yeah. it's like well that's just shitty luck I mean you know at the end of the day why did Westwood leave Las Vegas well because I was and still believed at this day the right thing to do was to consolidate the studios and we lost the bid yeah. and that's not I can't then turn around and say, oh, I don't believe in consolidation. Of course I do. It was the right thing at the time. Um, <clears throat> and to this day, <clears throat> sorry, to this day, satellite studios are really hard to manage. Yeah, um, sure. They're very, very inefficient. And so I do believe that um, centers of excellence, you know, look at Blizzard. Uh, yeah. Works well. Yep. You know, look at uh, uh, Riot. I yeah. mean, well, even Blizzard couldn't make it work, right? Like they, they had Blizzard North, and then that. It's just hard, and it's not hard for the reasons that people think it's hard. It's yeah. just hard, and so. Um, you know, no regrets. Uh, I mean, I wish we had managed to win that bid, but our politicians and our local, I mean, we had the deal on the table that was a better deal than L.A. They just wouldn't sign up for it. Yeah. And so it's like, okay, well, you know, we're going to move to L.A. And uh, and we didn't really capture much of the uh, Vegas talent. I mean, I think initially we got of the, uh, might have been 100 people by then because we had had a couple of big rifts because uh, we had big projects that just didn't work out. Um, and so... It was a bit more than that, actually. Now I think about about 150 people. And so I think of the 150, we got maybe 60 to move down there. Yeah. Within a year, we had 20. I mean, so the DNA that was Westwood Las Vegas just never really transferred to EALA. Yeah. Um, Ver Irvine did. Uh, Westwood Westwood uh, Pacific did. Actually, most of those guys ended up being uh, things. And that's why the Command and Conquer series took such a dramatic change uh, with Generals. Mm -hmm. Generals still had some amount of influence from Vegas, but... The zero hour and beyond, and then the minute you went into the next CNCs and um, the Lord of the Rings stuff, all of that was really the DNA from the Southern Studio. Very Blizzard, very Blizzard uh, like. Sure. So there was a very big departure. Right, um, cool. um, when what is uh, the the Spielberg? Uh, phase? Yeah, Boomblocks. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, because I know there was also like the LMNO game, and that's kind of a I, whole I, giant. I, I ran that one for a little while too. <laughs> yeah, um, that's probably. I can like... tell you. I know it's, it's like I said. It's long. The water on the bridge. A long time ago. So, yeah. um, so I went to EALA. Mm -hmm. um, true to my word, you know, it's like I'm going to stick with it. Mm -hmm. So I went down to EALA. I still lived in Vegas. My kids were going to school there, and they didn't want to move family. Um, mm -hmm. uh, Mike Leg and Joe Bostic and Steve Tall built a Petroglyph in Vegas, yeah. so they kept mm -hmm. most of the most of the people ended up migrating back over there. Um, but I but I uh, was very dutiful. Uh, 
creative uh, officer for uh, uh, Batter, John Batter. Uh And John and I I loved working for John um, at the L.A. studio because he was very transparent. I mean, he really, I really feel like I was a confidant. I mean, I know I was. He would share a lot of things with me that, you know, were, I mean, his trust was not misplaced. I would never have, have betrayed it. But at the end of the day, he was very open with me, and, and he asked me frequently, you know, what do you think about this? What would you do? And I would tell him, mm-hmm. rarely did he do what I would do, <laughs> but not because he didn't hear me, or, but because he had different reasons for why he wanted And I really appreciate that as a leader. Yeah. I learned a lot from that. It's like, you know, um, it doesn't hurt to be transparent. You don't have to be secretive. You can be pretty open with it. If you have mature people, um, and they can, t- they can take not hearing their advice taken, even if it doesn't work out, and recognize right. it's not their responsibility, that's fine. So for three years, I worked for John, and then uh, yeah, Neil Young came in, and um, and it was uh, well, it was uh, Neil Neil was coming in. They asked me if I would mind working for Neil because he worked for Virgin. And we had history. I love Neil; he's a good friend. And I said, no, no problem at all. And there's always this sensitivity of like, well, do you mind working for someone? So I'm like, no. I mean, I don't mind. Um, in fact, I think the best employees are former C-suite staff. Maybe mm-hmm. maybe it has to be CEO. You have to be in charge once to mm-hmm. realize that you don't want to be in charge the next time, you know, or maybe you don't want to be in charge. Um, so, uh, so anyways, um, I started working for Neil and we were doing, I think it was about a year I worked for Neil and I went on sabbatical because it was the timing with EA, you get your things. So it was seven weeks sabbatical and everything and did was doing very well financially and everything. And I'm like, you know, I can retire and just dork around and make indie games or whatever. Right. There was really no indie movement at the time, but it still was just like, whatever. Yeah. I'm kind of tired now of just being things. So, um, I came back from sabbatical and I said, yeah, I really appreciate Neil. You made me your chief creative officer and it was really fun. And I, I think, but I'm, I'm back from sabbatical and I, I don't know, I'm not currently working on anything. I'm trying to get RTS onto consoles and yeah. that's kind of going okay. It's doing well. We're making some money on it. I go, but I feel like I'm, I don't want to EP a project necessarily. And, and he goes, well, that's kind of a shame because there's this guy I was talking to that I sold him on you. And I really thought that you might be interested. And, and I go, I'm thinking, bastard I, I know this is gonna be good and of course he's like oh it's spielberg and i'm like okay yes yeah, so i don't get <laughs> so, so um yeah. met with uh, steven the first time uh and uh what a nice guy um yeah. and i i'd call him mr i called him mr spielberg until he beat, beat it out of me so <laughs> I, if i call him steven it's not because we're fast friends but because it's just it's yeah, just sure. it's just how he is um so anyways we met with him many many times uh talked about the product and everything and uh, EA came to me and said, we're going to make this big. It's going to be a huge hit. And we've got this other big project that's going on. And I go, yeah, you know, Stephen just wants to make a game about breaking things <laughs> and on, on the Wii. Right. And I go, and it's an unproven platform and it's new and there's not a lot. I go, you know, I don't need a big team. I don't want 60 people and all that. Mm-hmm. I go, give me five guys and let's just go do something fun, you know, and see where we get with it. And if the so was that just like one of like in your early meetings with him, was just one of his initial ideas? He said, like, I, had he played with the Wii? He had played point? with the Wii with uh, uh, okay. Miyamoto at a uh, trade show. And he Before said, Before it came out? Was that at this point? No, it was, it was shown at E3. It hadn't shipped yet. Um, yeah, that's what I mean. It hadn't yeah, shipped so, but yet. But he had shown it. So, yeah, yeah. so it was public and he goes, I really like that thing. He is, and, you know, I just want to make a game about breaking things because, mm. you know, as, as an uh, adult, I'm really fascinated by how physics plays out on the screen and how, how I anticipate I can ex- it's behaving in a way that I expect, but it does things that I didn't expect. And that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. It's very fascinating. He goes, and it's really delightful to watch. He goes, this, is, this simulation is really delightful to watch in a way that I never expected to be entertained. Yeah. He goes, and 
kids like to break things, so yeah, sure. we should make a game around that, right? Yeah. <clears throat> so we talked about it, and that was what Boomblocks was born. And and to Steven's credit, because I'll, I'll forget later, he desperately wanted to do a 2D version of the game where you had like kind of a slingshot, <laughs> right. and it would fly across the screen and knock things over, and you had little characters that would dance around and everything. You and sort of like Angry, Angry Birds? Exactly like Angry Birds. <laughs> like the way he described it and the way he drew it on the board and his... I mean, spot on. And at the time, Jamdat had been bought by EA and they had done mobile games and they said, we have to support all these old headsets, handsets. It's our mandate and they have to be, it can't be a physics simulator. We can only do that on the highest end phones. Yeah. So, So, well, I guess you can't make that game. Oh, well. (laughs) Right, exactly. And honestly, if EA had done Angry Birds as Boom Blocks and we had done it, it probably wouldn't have been the success it was because uh, Rovio dedicated everything they had to that game. Um, It would have just been a nice, nice... Another feather in EA's cap, and another off, one off, you know. Yeah, yeah. So I don't, I don't say for a second that we had the game of Angry Birds in our hands, but um, but Stephen had the insight. There's no question. Yeah. And this is the thing people don't understand about him. He loves games, mm-hmm. and he's very, very good at anticipating what people want. Yeah. When he saw The Sims the first time, he said, you know, wow, we should make. Or no, he didn't see The Sims. He was seeing SimCity, and he said we should make a game about people. This was at mm-hmm. when he was at, famously at EA mm-hmm. and, you know, like cooking and doing careers and all this stuff. He described the, the, the Sims. I mean, if, right. if you had just taken that snippet and talked about it later after The Sims, everybody goes, oh, yeah, it's The Sims. But he, in his mind, he saw this game of watching people and everybody's like, they're walking out of the room laughing, going, yeah, who's going to want to watch a game about people, you know? I mean, it really, it, I, I learned very quickly, listen very carefully to what he says. His yeah. insights are, are really, really strong. Yeah. And so we did Boomblocks, and it was a very small budget, um, very experimental. It was meant to be like a fun little lark project. It practically doubled its money from development costs to, to gross revenues. Um, we spent a lot marketing it, so made a little bit of money. It wasn't huge. And then we did Boomblocks too. <clears throat> um, we the way it is with console games. Of course, you've got a bit of time after you finish the first mm-hmm. game. You've got about a two or three months before you then pitch the next game, and about a month or so before it gets approvals. So we have about a three-month period. So I went to the team and I said, okay, I'm gonna, this is going to sound crazy. I know we just pressed to get this game out and everybody's going, popping the champagne. I go, there's a lot of things I want to do in the next game mm-hmm. and we're going to get pushback because the budgets of these things, it, we're, we're really budget-constrained. So I'm asking, will the team put in extra hours now after we ship the first game to get most of it done <clears throat> so that <clears throat> when we go to present Boombox 2, and we're told, well, we don't really want to do this, we don't really want to do that, we'll say, well, we kind of already did it. <laughs> and... And that's what we did. And so that's why Boomblocks 2 was so expansive and had the the user-generated content uh-huh. and all the things that we put in. It was a really, really good game. Like, if people haven't played that and you have a Wii, yeah. Boomblocks is, 2 is a phenomenal game. Yeah, yeah, really, really yeah I love game. both of them. The second one was definitely great. Yeah. Game, for sure. And, uh, I mean, it just impressed me so much that... Because, you know, there's, there's always been a funny relationship between games and Hollywood and, like... People try to go back and forth. Yeah. It usually doesn't work out very well. Oftentimes, like the Hollywood people don't really get games, but like, yeah. like it was like I've, I've like, had really good luck with that. Yeah, I really I mean, have. Well, the main thing is like with with Boomblocks, it was like okay, this is Spiel, Spielberg's involved, <laughs> but like this is a game game. Like yeah. clearly, like he was he wasn't at involved. Purely... This was Steven's idea. Yeah, it wasn't yeah, my yeah. idea. It was Steven's idea. We executed the best we could to his vision. Yeah, it was his game. I mean, people say, well, you know, Spielberg just put his name on I go, no, 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 no. He was there. I mean, there was times when he'd be in the meeting, we'd spend our hour, and he'd go, he'd call up Sam, and he'd say, oh, cancel my next meeting. And I'm, like, mm-hmm. thinking, I'm horrified. I'm, like, oh, my God, who did, who just got bumped right. so Stephen can talk about a video game? <laughs> but, but that's okay. I mean, it's his, his life. He can spend it any way he wants, yeah, you know? Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, it's just impressive that, like, he was able to, like... 
succeed on our own, like on the, the terms of the medium. Like, yeah. Right oh, away, and, and LMNO was, I mean, it was the highest rated Wii game EA ever had. Mm-hmm. And for the longest time ever had, I may, may still be the highest rated game they've ever had on the Wii. Right. I mean, right. that's pretty incredible. Yep, EA has done yep. some great games, you know, it's, it's amazing. And so that was Steven. It was a hundred percent Steven. I mean, I, I'm, I'm very glad to have been the person who executed his vision, but it wasn't my vision. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, one of BAFTA and everything else, which is awesome. It gets to sit on my mantle. But at the end of the day, without Stephen, it wouldn't have existed. And and I, I did run LMNO for a little bit because I took over Blueprint when, when mm-hmm. uh, Neil left. But the economy collapsed and budgets were tight. And, and frankly, um, you know, EA came to me and, and I, I've been around long enough to where they said, well, we really need to ship this game in this yeah. year. It was like January. We need to ship it this, this calendar year. And I'm like, this isn't going to happen. Yeah. And it's not going to happen, not because <clears throat> we couldn't ship a game with the technology we have now in that time. We could. we got a big team. we got a great people. But we're not going to ship the game that Steven wants to ship in that time. Okay. And that's not to say we shouldn't. We should. We should spend the two years, get it right, and do it. Uh, Doug Church was a uh, technical director and creative lead mm-hmm. on that. And what they were doing still to this day was mind-blowing. I mean, yeah. it would have been amazing. So you think it could have been a great game. It just... Oh, it, it yes, just, definitely. They, did, they just didn't want I mean, to pay for it. Eventually. Famously, Doug, every meeting would say... What you want to do is really, really hard. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying it can't be done, but it's really, really hard, and it's going to take a lot of time. And uh, yeah, I mean, now I mean, certainly you could do it, but even back then, it was it was getting there. The visual quality, uh, wow! I mean, just unbelievable. What was the cha- most challenging part of that project? Um, because there was like an AI the, companion type thing, yeah, right? Making that, a person, yeah. making a computer and a computer actor that felt so human so real as to create empathy <clears throat> real strong empathy real connection um and we, they had the character was amazing eve was amazing and uh the setting the story the environments i mean just phenomenal they were the, the at the time it's so hard to explain because at the time you would look at the best games that were getting the accolades for art for art and like so many things, they look amazing until you see it later and mm-hmm. in the context of new stuff. And you go, oh, my God, we thought that was good. It's like special effects in movies. Sure. You go, oh, my God, that, that was so realistic. Jurassic Park was amazing. Then you see Jurassic Park again. You're like, e-. mm-hmm. It was very good. It wasn't nearly as good as I remember. Well, this game had that same effect. Once you worked on this project and you looked at every other game in the industry, you're like, they just don't look good. This looks amazing. It looks mm-hmm. truly photorealistic. And yeah. it had a magic realism about it. It was really beautiful. Um, but... Yeah, yeah. it wasn't to be. I mean, maybe, you know, there's a couple of points in my life, you know, maybe if I had lied and said, sure, we'll get it done. And then, you know, six months later, begged forgiveness, we could have kept going. But I, I just don't want to, I don't want to spend my life doing those kinds of things because it's just, uh, it's yeah. a lot of brain damage. Have you played, uh, have you played Bioshock Infinite? I haven't, yeah, no. Okay, because I'm, I'm just trying to think of like another game that has tried to do something like that. Yeah, that's, I, that's like the core I'm part so that busy game. making mobile games right now yeah. that I haven't had a chance to really play through some of, like I'm looking at the district, or district? Uh, no, not the district. The division. Yeah, the division. Right. Division. I'm seeing the division, and I really want to play a division, but I haven't had a chance yet. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounds really. It sounds like it has a lot of things that I would really like. So. Uh, the other thing I want to talk about from this phase was the Middle Earth uh, console. Sure, Battle for Middle Earth console games. Yeah, yeah. Um, because it seems like I remember. Um, I remember giving a talk at GDC about that. And yeah. Like this big challenge of like how do you take yeah. RTS games, make them work on the console. Um, I, I think we did. I mean, I'm, I, I feel very good with what we got. We got decent sales on it. You know, it didn't take the world by storm, but at the same time, that wasn't the expectation. It was, can we 
can we spend more money on RTSs than we were previously spending because we could leverage them across multiple platforms? And the answer to that is only if you can make a AAA quality game on a console that also is true to the RTS. You know, I think we we succeeded. You know, in space on that, we really did. It, it, it worked out really well. In fact, for a time, you could actually play the console version against the PC version head to head. Oh, really? And if you knew how to use the console controller, you could whoop people's ass <laughs> on a PC because it was so fast. To you know, it's two clicks, and you had a, a squad collected, a squad selected and targeted. You know, it's like you couldn't swipe, and you know, even the fastest uh, Korean players with with keys, key keyboard commands <clears throat> couldn't quite keep up with the actions per minute you could do on the console controller. Right. So, uh, so it was really successful in that way. Um, it's just the concept of controlling lots of things with a controller was very significantly different to people at the time, to where that uh, that I don't think uh, it was. It was really kind of PC people playing on the console, kind of mapping that experience that were really enjoying it. And uh, new console players weren't, yeah. not many of them were finding it. Yeah. I mean, I found it, um, I played it, and it was it was very interesting to me because it was like, I, I felt like you guys did some really amazing work with, with the controls. But at the same time, it's like, the RTS is so clearly a game. It's like... <laughs> Who blocks in the Wii, right? Yeah. Like, like the RTS is just yeah, sure. like so integrated into like that that PC. Yeah, experience. I mean, I, I would argue that you know if you didn't have the PC, and people learned to play it on that, they would get so acclimated to it, they'd go back and say, "How could you ever play this with a mouse and a keyboard?" Uh -huh. um, well, I, I mean, to... I feel like what you almost need to do is like make an RTS game the high level concept from scratch yes. on a console. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, that's right. The right way to do it. We didn't do that. Um, so uh, yeah, so agreed. I mean. We need to be successful on the PC and map it to a console. If you had wanted to be just successful on the console and made it only for the console, you could definitely be successful. Um, and as evidence for that, uh, the the common wisdom of the day was that a first-person shooter will never work on a console. Sure, right. That yeah, was yeah. that remember, was the common wisdom. That period, yeah. And then GoldenEye on the Nintendo 64 came out, and everybody goes, "Wait a minute." Right. And then you know the rest is history. There are still people that will tell you, "I can I feel much better playing a first-person shooter on a PC." Than I would on a console, but there are equally many people on the console that say, "I don't know how you can ever do that mouse keyboard thing." Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, mean, I think VR is going to go the same way too. That's that, yeah. So, anyways. Yeah. I mean, controls are just such an important part of the yeah. experience that, like, you know, I really feel like games are best when you almost start with the controls when yeah. you're considering how to. Well, the, game. like famously, you know, a lot of people talked about it. You're you're not when you're playing a game on a controller. You're not playing. The game you're playing the controller. Yeah. The controller is the game. Yeah. If you think about it. Yeah. Right. It's a kind of a creepy thought to say, well, if you could just jack that thing into your head, you don't need everything else. It's the physical device that you're playing with is the game. Yeah. 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 So. So have you have you uh, experimented with VR much yet? Or like, a I, mean, bit, yeah. I mean, you're working on mobile stuff right now. Uh, like... No, I'm a I'm a contractor, so right, most right. of my time is spent on a mobile RTS game. Um, right. Yeah, it's a, a War Commander Rogue Assault by right. Kicksize, so it's all very public. Yeah. Um, but uh, I also uh, have worked with uh, something that's not public that is <laughs> that is uh, VR uh, VR experiences. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts about where you think VR is going to go? Or? Lots. I mean, it's certainly a, <laughs> certainly a hot topic. I have you... a lot of them. I mean, I, I think um, I think it's uh, very broadly uh, like so many new medium. Mm. Uh, the first attempts are going to be to take the thing that worked in the last medium and make it work in the new medium. Uh, and just like we just talked about, yeah. that's not actually what it's for. Yeah. Uh, and. There so would be. What do you think it is for then? Oh uh, well, I mean that that's that's what gets into to get into the nuance at that point. But I think, um, and I'm not going to suggest that I'm the one who's so brilliant that's going to figure it out. But I do know that, like so many things, um, there will be a, a seminal art 
uh, mm-hmm. piece of art on yeah. that device where everybody goes, oh my God, now yes, that's what it's for. Yep. Um, and I think I have ideas about that, but at the end of the day, um, I don't know that I'm right. I just know that it will happen. Um, there's no way that mapping the controller experience into that environment is what that was for. Uh, I think it will work very well for vehicle simulators. <clears throat> Sure. Yeah. Those those are very simple. Um, not simple. They're not simple. It's that's just, it's just clear what the. It's clear. Yeah. It's 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 obvious what the outcome is necessary, and mm-hmm. it's very hard to make it work. Um, what is unclear to me is the other thing that we use it for that that uh, is hasn't been it, this whole new genre, yeah. and it'd be the VR genre. You yeah. know, um, and I think part of it has to do with there's VR and AR. I believe a lot more in AR than I do in VR, but I think mm-hmm. VR is a good step in the right direction. Right. Um, I think the AR uh, ends up being transformative culturally, mm-hmm. and VR is um, um, incrementally, uh, incrementally, and, and um, additionally interesting as an as an entertainment platform. Yeah. Whereas I think uh, AR is transformative because it can be anywhere easily because it can once it is mobile. Mm-hmm. It is beyond goes beyond an entertainment experience. It goes beyond an, an immersive experience. It's an augmented experience. Yeah. And um, I guess I just believe long term that people are going to find a lot more uh, productive uses for augmented reality than they will for uh, true uh, virtual reality, where you have a true um, immersion. Yeah. It's tough. The stuff I've seen in VR that's most exciting <clears throat> has usually been has been on the Vive, but like the Vive, like. It's a whole room, right? Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, that, well, that's that's the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> the stuff I've seen on some of the high end platforms, the high end um, mm-hmm. uh, headsets that have beyond that go beyond just uh, just a screen, a screen yeah. and audio, where they're actually measuring lots of other things. Mm-hmm. Um, that becomes really interesting. Yeah, because as a as a game maker, knowing the state of the player. Uh, it, like I, I believe that data has transformed the art of game making games. Right, mm-hmm. the art of making games before was uh, throwing darts in the dark. Right, you know there was no way to calibrate, and there was you were just trusting that the genius guy would come up with another great idea. Mm-hmm. Um, you could be validated or invalidated by the market, but there's so much noise in that that you can't even really be sure whether it was the person who came up with the idea or not. There's execution and market. Well, now you have data, and data doesn't just it's like the best focus test in the world. Mm-hmm. You don't have to, <clears throat> you don't have to wonder if you were right or not. You still need brilliant people to come up with the ideas, the hypotheses, but you can validate your hypotheses absolutely scientifically. Well, I think it's going to be the same kind of thing where now we have this new tool, which is sensors, which tells us what the person's doing. Um, to some extent, we've had them for a while. Like we know where per- person has aimed the camera, so we know where they're looking in a three D mm-hmm. game. But when you have somebody who's intuitively looking around and you not only have their head position, but you have their focus of their eyes, that's a lot of information. That's a new sensor input. When you have their heart rate, when you have their EKG, when you have their their temperature, when you have their alpha waves, and you start having all these sensors, you go to a very different level of understanding with the state of the player. Mm-hmm. And that means you can give a different type of entertainment experience. Right. And, and um, it's transformative in my mind because... The interactive medium is the only one that can make use of that. Right. Uh, so it's the place where finally, maybe the first time ever, interactive can open new types of entertainment that are custom designed around the state of the person, the emotional state of the person. That to me is 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 mind blowing and right. infinite. <clears throat> yeah. Cool. I, um, 
I one one last question um, before we wrap up, sure. which is, um, you know, looking back through you know kind of your whole career now, like why um, why do you think you decided to dedicate you know your your working life to to making video games? Um, you know, I think it goes back to something I said earlier on, and maybe didn't hit as hard as I might have. Uh, as a fine artist, as a creative person. <clears throat> um, I learned, like all fine artists do, to copy, to imitate, to render. Uh, I'm not as good as some, but I'm better than a lot. <laughs> and like most people, you look at a Picasso or you look at these things, not to compare myself to that, but the, the inner desire to be outside of that learning. To Once you learn the mechanics, the skills, you want to express creatively mm -hmm. and you want to do it in a way that's your unique expression. And I think it's something that unites all artists, no matter what medium they maybe all creative people, uh, whether programmers, artists, designers, musicians, you know, you want to, I think it, we all strive to do something meaningful that is, that adds to the body of art that adds to the human experience in our medium. And, um, as an artist, I was frustrated because everything I thought of was, had been done by some guy who died 300 years ago. Mm -hmm. And so here was this new tool that could have, Sure, I may not be the first cubist, but I might be the first computer cubist. Right. And so here was this new tool that offered a new platform that would allow me to express. Um, and then uh, my favorite definition of art uh, was a guy who came to our, he was a professional painter who came to our, our uh, college and he said uh, the best definition he had was an artist is somebody who intentionally provokes emotion in an audience. Mm. And that was the best he could come up with because he said everybody's coining the term artist now to validate their craft. And and I thought about that a lot. And I think that's what makes me want to make games. It's what made me really dedicate my life to it, which is this is a really fun way to be one of the first to provoke an, an emotion in an audience. Um, and to know by definition it must be unique because it didn't exist before. Right. And that makes it fun. <clears throat> And I don't think of games as games. I think of not maybe not art exactly in the same way I think of painting and drawing and, and how that how that happens. But I think of them as an art form, mm -hmm. and I think of them as a new art, a, a type of interactive art that that can transcend um, art as we know it uh, and can be a very personal as well as a very broad experience. So that's why I like games, and that's why I'm probably going to do it forever. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know. And, it's it's like people say, well, why are you doing mobile games? I'm like, well, because there's a lot of people who have mobile handsets, yeah. and if I'm going to find my particular expression in a way that I've provoked that emotion that I want, what better place to do it than where there's you know billions of people? Yeah, um, I'll find the the sum number that I need to make that not just a, a creative, creatively successful, but financially successful enough to where I can keep doing it. Yeah. Uh, and that's actually the scarier part about VR is it's going to take some time for that to be a, a financially successful thing. But yeah. long term, I absolutely believe in it. It's it's uh, VR and AR are um, going to be really, really fabulous. Um, and I'm hoping to be able to do something commercially in it soon. But uh, for the time being, I, 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 I want the audience. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, and that maybe that's a little... Uh, a little bit of that ego that all of us have. Certainly artists all have ego. <laughs> if you didn't have ego, you can't be an artist. But I want it to be... I want it to reach people. Yeah. Um, and yeah, well, so, well, people are excited about it. And yeah, that's going to be the hard part, I think, is a bit of the waiting. Because... Yeah, yeah. So in the meantime, you know, I'm happy to go out and do mobile experiences that reach hopefully millions of people and, yeah. um, and, and maybe introduce them to some of the things that intrigue me about interactive entertainment and games. 
and uh, and then next is like okay, how do we take that to the ne- another level of <clears throat> fidelity? Mm-hmm. Um, and frankly, I think mobile devices are also going to shock the hell out of people because they just keep getting better, <laughs> you know, really really fast, and uh, they're already high quality. And the sensors that are in something like a Samsung, where you have that uh, the Gear VR stuff, um, mm-hmm. you know, wow, I wish I had had that when I was doing the Wii Wii sure. games. My God, that thing is awesome. So. Yeah. Cool. All well, right. thanks for the interview. I really appreciate it. It's yeah, thanks for, for doing this. I think people will really people are going to enjoy it. <laughs> Excellent. Mm-hmm.